0: GW is uh, is is reinventing the hobby knife and the hobby drill. What do you want to bet? Those are thirty five dollars a piece. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Look, I'll pay thirty five dollars for a hobby knife if the blade never dulls. But uh, since they haven't made that yet, <laughs> it includes a set of removable, replaceable blades, and it looks like it uses standard Exacto blades. I mean, sure, but you know what? Also uses standard Exacto blades. The standard Exacto knife. <laughs> also true.
1: Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that has a story to tell. I'm your host, Rob.
2: Kevin. Dennis.
1: And Richard. And today, our main topic is not going to be list reviews. I'm sorry, I am terrible at promises. Uh, Scheduling got kind of weird on this episode, and so we're kind of moving ahead to other topics because with October... We are now recording in October, and this is the month that uh, the Warhammer U.S. Open is happening in Kansas City, and we have three of us playing in the Narrative Crusade event there, so we figured this would be a good time to talk about Crusade play, something we've never really touched on much in the show, other than mentioning during like Codex reviews and such. So that is going to be our main topic, but as always, uh, news, new releases, and your listener mail. And... I would imagine, even though yesterday, as of time of recording, we had the Warhammer Day 30th, 35th anniversary upcoming preview reveal, we will talk about that, but I'd say the biggest bit of news, and coming right off the heels of our last episode, which was our review of the Leagues of Votan Codex, is the fact that the Leagues of Votan Codex had to get fixed or at least got <laughs> yeah. fixed, whether it needed to get fixed is up for debate. But I don't uh,
2: think it got fixed. I thought, think they, they broke it with their fixes, but we'll get into that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> so um, first off, let's talk about The Elephant in the Room, Codex Zotes is Confirmed. Yes, <laughs> I think if there's one important thing to take away from the update, it's that we know James Workshop himself is working on Codex Zotes and is going to give the entire army a two up and vulnerable save, even though he's not really yeah. sure what that
0: means. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the takeaway that I yeah. got from that. That's the only thing I took <laughs> away from that that whole thing. So yeah,
2: my takeaway was a little different. Of when I watched that, they said they're going to strategically. Update the units of the codex that need it, and strategically update the rules to make them work. And, and they said that whole strategic, and it wasn't going to be widespread. I'm like, okay, cool. And then I saw the changes,
0: I was like, that's not what you guys said. I mean, they, they they said it wasn't going to be widespread in that they literally changed the points and rules for every army in the codex. Yeah, I know. Every I don't, I don't, I don't see how that's widespread. Yeah, Personally, I, know, okay. I, I don't know what you're complaining about.
3: <laughs> I mean, and they it, changed it, it, a universal rule for it, right? And and that that only affects what twelve units. Yeah, I mean, it's a, rel- yeah, In the, it's a right? small small change.
0: It is a small uh, change, relatively. It's it's way smaller of a change than like armor of contempt that affected way more units.
1: Wait, way way yeah. more factions that affected a bunch yeah. of factions. And, and, and next year
2: you're gonna say bigger models too? Yes, yeah, taller <laughs> models. So, so,
1: Dennis, are you thinking they are you saying their changes kind of came up short
2: on effectiveness? Oh gosh. <laughs> and notice not me making all of these bad puns today.
1: No, this is revenge for years and years. Yes.
2: Oh my!
1: <laughs> like I said, you asked for it, you got it. Uh, so, uh, besides the fact that Games Workshop did actually poke fun at themselves for screwing up the rules, or at least in their words, screwing up the, wor- the rules. They did basically come out within a week or two of the Codex release from the army box. Like The general audience release of the Codex is not here yet. Buying units outside of the special preview army box is not available yet. So they they did this change before the army is widely available. And one of the reasons they did that, they said, was that if you buy the army, then You're not screwed if two weeks later they apply the fixes and now suddenly you've bought a 2,000-point army that isn't a 2,000-point army anymore.
2: And I -hmm. do appreciate that a lot, actually, because everybody knows that normally a month after the codex hits is when they'll pretty much nerf it from all the previous codexes. But that's because, as they said in their, their, I guess, interviews, they – test the codex against what's current at the time. And they said like it was Eldar and Tyranids, So it's balanced to that. And both Eldar and Tyranids have gotten nerfs since then. And those nerfs, same nerfs weren't applied to the Votan codex. So I can fully see the logic there. And the fact that they did make this change before the full release of the line, I appreciate, um, It did change a little bit what I'm going to buy, but not really because I still want at least one of every unit to have and two of some and more of others. So, I mean, it's more because I like the looks of the models than the rules. I mean,
1: but let's, let's talk about what those changes were. First off, I'd say. The biggest change is the change to the Eye of the Ancestor's ability. Now, this is an ability that we talked about a lot. This was those judgment tokens that would cause a unit to be able to auto-hit auto-wound on a certain die roll. One one token, you auto-hit and auto-wound on sixes. You don't even roll to wound. You just automatically... Like, if you roll a six to hit, you auto-wound. Um, and two tokens, fives gave you auto-hit, auto-wound, and then three tokens, which was the max, four auto-hits and auto-wounds, and... As printed, those count as sixes to wound, which is really strong because there's a number of weapons in the army that cue off of sixes to wound, such as no, magna rail weapons yeah. spilling spilling wounds over as mortals in uh, when you do sixes to
2: wound. Right. There, there were four things that that triggered off of. One, as you said, is the magna rail weapon that once you rolled a six to wound any extra wounds are spilled over instead of just on that one. The second is um, the ion guns, not themselves, but there's a stratagem that every time you roll a six to wound with them, you get a, a mortal wound in addition to the damage. So that was hugely strong. And I mean, it caps out at six mortal wounds. That's sixes. That's still a lot of mortal wounds. <laughs> yeah, but you do have to spend the command point for, and you have to have your ion weapons in range, which are only like, they're not that, I think they're 18 inches. So, and the ion weapons are mostly on your troops. Um, the third one is the forge master, which that model itself, not the unit, just the model. Um, if you upgrade him to the, the high, the high version, sorry.
1: But yeah. The forge master.
2: Yeah. He does mortal wounds instead of normal damage. If he rolls an unmodified six. And so that just changes his stuff to, well, you get mortal wounds instead of normal damage. And then the last one is the trans Iperian Alliance, which if they roll a six to wound, um, the AP of the weapon goes down by one. And that's probably the, the one that affects a whole faction. But at the same time, it's the one nobody t- is talking about because it's not one of the factions people are looking at playing a lot of.
1: Right. And so the yeah, the fix is we're just making it no longer wound on auto sixes. Like it just counts as it's ne in fact it's never considered to be made with an unmodo- right. unmodified wound roll of 6, which is weird because now it makes having a grudge or you having judgment tokens on a unit actually make your weapons less good.
2: <laughs> yes, like- and that's what people are complaining about is once you have the judgment token on them, if you happen to roll the dice to hit with your judgment token and you auto wound, well, you don't get a roll for a wound, so now you can't activate your, your Iron Storm stratagems, not gonna work. I mean, the Forge Master was, I don't think people are that complaining about that, but it was more the Iron Storm and the Magna Rail.
1: And it's particularly tricky because, like, there are things that will just cause enemy units to accumulate judgment tokens without you having any say. Did they destroy oh, right. one of your units?
2: Did they it's do an a action? judgment
1: token? Are they, Yeah, are they uh, yeah, perform an action or I think even being on an standing, objective,
2: standing yeah. on an objective.
1: Yeah, it's like who does that? Oh right, that's how you score in every <laughs> single competitive game. Mm. I
2: I mean the, the, the army was built. You, you do things you're supposed to do. Well, we have a grudge against that.
1: Yeah. Now, granted, you do pick the unit that's on an objective, so you do have right. a little bit of control there. But yeah, if they do an action or psychic action, or they destroy a Votan unit from your army, yeah, it's like they just accumulate tokens, and suddenly, yeah, you're better at wounding them, but you're also worse at working with your, your army rules, which is is really weird, and like it feels like a poorly thought out fix.
2: I mean, it feels like a knee-jerk reaction to me. Absolutely. And- I think yeah. Rob, you've talked about this and this is the, pretty much the consensus I've seen from around, well, everywhere is a better change would have been say that an unmodified hit roll of six counts as an unmodified wound roll of six. Yeah. Cause then you still have that chance. It's still, it's not all the time and it just makes your uh, six roll of hit really important then and. I think that's the more balanced version they should have went with instead of just the sweeping change of, oh, it, it used to be all sixes. Now it's nothing. So it's like, hmm. So, yeah, it's
1: not a good feel. And definitely uh, the response I've seen on like just the general competitive scene has been, oh no, this is a good change. It's, it's probably good. It may be too broad a change, but we're glad they, they undertook this quickly. And, uh, there's probably some fine tuning to go, but this will definitely make them from an unstoppable army to probably a mid tier. And it's interesting because this is also like in response to, what was it? Was it the ETC that basically banned the codex? Yeah. At launch? Well,
2: I think that I, that story was blown out of proportion, because from what I also yeah. read, that group bans every codex until the first fact for the codex comes out. Exactly.
1: <laughs> but yeah, like I, how many YouTube videos I saw saying like, oh, you know, Germany has banned
0: the Leagues of Votan codex.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so that's it, just misreporting the information.
0: It was people, I think... I think a lot of times, I think it was people pushing their own agenda. They they got yes. a leaked version of the Codex and were like, this is broken, I think it's broken. Someone's banning it, now I'm going to report on it and say it's confirmed that it's broken. And I, I that stuff is really irritating to me. <laughs> and I know that it's just a minor ecosystem for a war game, but I hate when people lie like, to serve an agenda.
2: And the other thing about it is this is just looking at The, I guess, damage output, it doesn't look at how the army plays the game. Votons still struggle with movement. I mean, sure, they have steady advance where they can go eight inches, but their normal movement, if they don't want to have the advance penalty, is five inches. They are not a mobile army. I mean, that's why you have the Sagittars and Pioneers.
1: Yeah, and with their weapons being hunter instead of assault or rapid fire or anything, especially not being assault weapons in most cases... Uh, that steady advance does not allow them to fire. So right. they can choose to move quickly, you know, move
2: somewhat quickly I mean, or shoot. <laughs> yeah, they can set up fire lanes, but you can see where their fire lanes are and you can avoid them. I mean, it, tactical play, I think, can outmaneuver the Voton. I mean, which is probably why I'm going to lean towards Sagittarius and Pioneers because mm-hmm. I like my movement. <laughs>
1: Oh, and any army that's got uh, a decent amount of mortal wound output is going to hand Leagues of Oton their asses because they oh, don't yeah. have a lot of ways to deal with it because, like, Void Armor doesn't do anything against it. They've only got the one Psyker if they want to try to deny psychic powers. It's like, I don't think Leagues of Oton would have, like, Knocked Tyranids off of the shelf anytime soon.
2: No, and the, the only thing this change has really done is limited the spillover and mortal wound output that they can do. Um, to where it, the, the best way you can now do mortal wounds is your Psyker, your Grimner. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they went from, I guess, scary to, I guess, really tame. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And then along with that rules change, we also got uh, an across-the-board points update for them. Now, we were joking earlier that this only affects 12 units.
2: Yeah, Unfortunately, which is all of them.
1: there's only 12 <laughs> units in the army, so...
2: But yeah. the, the things I'll say on this is—and this is something that I've heard—I mean, Kevin, you said you've heard from other channels. I've seen from multiple communities is the Votan took the best technology from every other faction and made it better or cheaper— and that's what everyone was complaining about because the Votans seemed to got have the best of everything, and it was better, cheaper, faster, stronger. Well, as we looked at the railgun, maybe not stronger, but, mm-hmm. um, and I think people did like we have the the plasma and the ion that don't get hot. Ooh, um, well, our psychers were it, cheaper than other people's.
0: Well, I think I think personally, like uh, it kind of fits the narrative too. Like this is a it does. this is a faction that like went out and didn't lose as much stuff during the dark age of technology they trade with other units like it it makes sense to me that they would be the propagators of a lot of this technology that these other factions use that do- that doesn't bother me at all what really bothers me is, you know, in like groups and stuff for like this where like tau players who and yeah, as a tau player, I'm gonna call out some other tau players. Oh my gosh! I can't believe that everyone thinks that our codex is so broken without even letting us play it. There's clear downsides. <laughs> this thing is broken. And I'm like, do you guys not understand what you're doing? Like, yeah. yeah, let's actually play the damn army before we decide that this is broken and needs to be nerfed into the ground. I mean,
2: yeah, <laughs> some of the point costs I will totally agree with. Like, I think all the HQs were undercosted. I think they're a lot better now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm I'm okay with those. Hearthguard. i was not happy with their change because that's like a 50 point increase because they were what 30 a model 35 and they went to 45 yeah that's that that's big i mean when when
1: the unit's five when the unit's five models that's a you know 50 point increase so
0: yeah it's a lot but also i kind of think that unit needed it like going back and looking at it i'm like that's that's not the one that i'm mad about i think that's still a viable unit
2: well, and here's my take on it, Kev. I will look at a custodes. Same two up armor, same strength, same toughness, um, less wounds. But um we have void armor to kind of make up for that. Custodes mm-hmm. are 45 points each. So after I saw that, I'm like, well, yeah, I I, I wish they were a little lower, maybe 40, but I'll accept 45 just because. But that, like I said, that 50 point increase from start to finish, it yeah. it it felt like a hurt. Cause I wanted to have two of those units in an army and that 50 points means I can really only have one if, unless I want to sacrifice other units, which was kind of sad. Well, you, next one, I guess is Elite the Berserkers. Yeah. Oh man. I, I think they got overcosted too. Cause they jumped from 22 to 30. Which and again, it's five
1: a, points per model. That's a 40 point up, 40 point increase for the entire unit.
2: Uh, no, t- or what did I say? Did I say 25? you said 22 yeah 22 to 30 so yeah, yeah eight right points per
1: model five 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 models yeah
2: sorry i was also looking at them as a 10 man squad but yes <laughs> so
1: oh, so eight, yeah, 80 four, in that 40 case. or 80
2: based on yeah and comparable ones wolfen are 20 although wolfen don't um have all the features they do um the Custody wardens have the same feel no pain and they're 50 a model that's i'm glad we're not that um Witches? No, I mean, there's no real comparison I could find to the berserkers, but I don't know. I would have rather seen maybe 25 as opposed to the jump all the way to 30. Cause yeah, another 20, 40 point 25, increase.
1: 25, I think would have been a, a decent starting point and then tuned from there. Although it's easier well, to go big, see if you've overcorrected and then peel back.
0: Yeah, yeah that's true. Well, as I'm a, fond of it, as a, com- true. <laughs> as a comparison, uh, for the Chthonian Berserks, the Corn Berserkers are 22 points per unit, so, you know, per man. So, like, obviously the Berserkers have other things going for them, but, you know, and other downsides. But yeah, like, I think they probably overcosted them a little bit because there's a very big delivery problem with the Berserks.
2: Oh, yeah, like a five inch movement range. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, but you do uh, have a transport that can actually fit a good sized squad of them, except that also got more expensive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, going into fast attack, like the pioneers, the Pioneers yeah. went up five points per model. That one's not too bad.
2: No, it's fifteen to thirty point increase. I'm I'm okay with that for all that that they do. That's they did that did not even make my list. Just like the troops didn't make my list, or the HQ didn't right. make my list.
1: Uh, the Sagittarius went up twenty points each.
2: Yeah, I don't like that. Um, at 110, it was the same cost as a Space Marine Impulser. So, and kind of this, a similar role too. And, exa- mm-hmm. I mean, the only difference is the Sagittar, if you take two, so double the cost of it, it can combat squad. And so this is like what a 20 point combat squad ta- or a 40 point combat squad tax.
1: Yeah, it's not a small difference.
2: So the only thing I could see about why it jumped so much is this is this is your best vehicle for like maneuverability around the board, other than the pioneers, and this has a lot of defense too. I guess the Impulsor does as well. So uh, I don't know. I, I don't think this one needed to change co- comparing to other things around, but I'm hoping it goes back down some because the main purpose of and the main reason I want to use the Sagittars is to combat squad and. Ideally, I would love to take four in an army, just so I can combat squad two Not at
1: 130 a piece, though.
2: No, at 110, because, I mean, the weapon everyone wants to put on there is a 20-point weapon, so I was already paying 130. Using that weapon makes it 150 now, so that would be 600 points of your army just on four Sagittars to combat squad two things.
1: That's a lot.
2: (laughs) That's... I mean that's where I'm like, uh, eh, I'll probably just focus on two sagittars then because I still want to do that, but doing it twice is is too much. I mean, 40 points seems like a small thing, but the, the all these point increase cuz it's everywhere, it adds up very quickly.
1: Mhm. And then there there's the 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 biggest the biggest single increase on the biggest single model in your army.
2: Well, I had Thunderkin next, but we, we can oh, jump you do, did
1: you actually want to I mean, talk about thunderkin because i mean a five point increase doesn't seem like that much when they already weren't a great unit anyway
2: yeah i don't know why they even changed them <laughs> that's the point kevin right there If yeah. they're not a good unit already to get people to really want to use them you're upping the cost
0: like, I mean, it, like honestly if, if they had lowered them by five points that that they still wouldn't be a good unit <laughs>
2: I mean, that's unit. also
0: true, <laughs> like, and, and that's something he, he I think we
2: wrong should. Way. <laughs> yeah, that's something we should also talk about. Is I mean, if a unit, because they even said that they want to balance the units within a codex where all of them can get some play time, and the Thunderkin are, are were already kind of at the bo- They have neat weapons, but once again, mm. that that five inch movement means once they're deployed. There, you can just have them sit there for a fire lane. They're not gonna, <laughs> they're not gonna be moving around the board much. At least they can move and fire, but still. Um, I thought 35 was okay. I, I'm kind of like Kev. I think they could drop for, because of the problems they have, mm-hmm. but 35 is probably where they need to be. So any increase, I was like, no, no. And then yes, now we've got the land fortress. Going from 230 to 300 points base.
1: I, I and the upgrade's agree. changed, but yeah, right. that's that's a big jump.
2: I will agree at 230, I even thought it was undercosted and off-the-cuff would have thought it should have been 250 to start. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I saw it go to 300, I'm, my, my jaw just dropped. I'm like, they really don't want you taking more than one of this. Because, yeah. like I said, with the Sagittarius... Four those is 600. Well, two land fortresses without weapon upgrades is 600. <laughs> so, um, and even if that was 250 prior to the weapon upgrades, that's still fi- a little over 500. I mean, that's sizable, but that's, I can put that in my army, but I mean, land fortresses is, is nice. I still am going to get one because it looks really cool. I don't know if I'll pick up the extras because would I ever play a second one now? Right. But yeah, looking at the others, I know I t- asked you about the hammerhead because both have the big u- uber weapon. Um, but we know the hammerhead's not as um, defensible um, and it has no transport capacity and that type of air quote negatives, which aren't because ne- yours is a gun platform, not a fortress. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so the the two that it came across was either the land raider or the repulsor. Space Marine Land Raiders are two forty five. Everyone else is two sixty-five. So I could see it being around that, especially like the two sixty five, two seventy range, make it a little stronger than a Land Raider or cost more than a Land Raider.
1: Yeah, a repulsor's two seventy. That seems like a a fine comparison and a good price point.
2: And I mean mm-hmm. even that would be five forty with probably the upgrades you'd want to take would be 10 or 20 more. So you'd be around five fifty, five sixty if you wanted to take two, which I think two being a quarter of your army is probably fine. Mm-hmm. Um, two being over a third of your army is not as fine.
1: <laughs> right. And, and at like 250 each, it also makes like, because we talked about the swapping out uh, like the bolt cannons for the ion beamers. And now it's like, at, at 230, it's like, oh, yeah, swap out all four. It's only 250. You're still only at 250 points, and you're putting beams out everywhere. Now it's like if you were at 250, you'd be like, okay, I got to think about this a little bit. And at 300, it's like, no, I would never do that because I can't afford well, to. <laughs> because then you're talking like 320.
2: The other thing is if you have all four beamers, you could use the Ion Storm strat again. Um, but with... Two beamers, maybe not. With zero beamers, you're not going to worry about it. And so, I mean, once again, that that stratagem that lets you do mortal wounds with your Ion guns, it, it's kind of out of play now. So Ion is not as cool anymore. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I I think looking at these changes, I'm reminded of something else. And we were actually talking about this before recording. And we'll go ahead and talk about, about it now, is how the meta has shifted. Because this reminds me somewhat of the Mechanicus changes where Mechanicus was coming out of the gate super strong. And then when they started putting balanced uh, data slate updates in, uh, Mechanicus got busted down really quickly. And now thanks to the, uh, the latest meta watch, we know that Mechanicus is not even pulling a 40% win rate. Like Mechanicus is the single worst army that they are collecting data for right now. And it's like they're actually peeling back those changes now in the balance data slates as other things have pushed up. And so I have a feeling we're going to see the same thing with Leagues of Votan. I think we're going to see this change come in, and then we'll they'll see where the win rate is for Votan, because as you said, Dennis, they don't have maneuverability. They have survivability, but if they can't get anywhere to get onto objectives, if they can be outmaneuvered and still outfought, outshot, or outmortaled, then they're not going to be swinging good win rate. Uh, they said the ideal would be 50%. Um, I don't know if they're going to hit that even. But I could see them eventually tweaking these changes to, like, maybe we will see a 270-point land fortress down the road a bit, but it's going to be a while. And it's weird, you know, yes, these changes are coming in before anybody's buying anything, which is good, but it's also coming in with no
2: data. Yes, that's the biggest thing, is, and I expect in a month, Crossing Fingers, that they'll take a look at it, but I'm still fearful because they've already air quote, put the fact out for them already that in a month when they normally do tweaks, they might not. And they'll say, well, we've already tweaked them. So we're just going to go off the the data from like we do everybody else now. And I, I think they need to have a keener eye on it, especially a brand new faction, not, not just a new codex, but a brand new faction to see how it's doing. Because I mean, yes, it was t- too strong. It needed something done. But as you noted, Rob, they made the changes without any real data. Cause the only data they had before is to go against Tyranids, Eldar, all the things pre nerfs for those factions. Right. So they don't have any real data for how it would be in the current environment.
0: So the, the, the thing that concerns me most about this and, I'm not the only one that's talked about this. This, At some point this year, we know that GW fired a bunch of playtesters because of leaks and other things. We don't know, and we'll probably never know if this was done with internal playtesting or if this was done with the old playtesters. But very clearly, something very obvious was missed during the playtesting of this army. And if it's because they fired all of their external playtesters and they just did internal playtesting with the design studio and something obvious got missed, that's really concerning going forward. Right. (laughs) Although,
1: I also want to remark on a response video to the change. I've talked about how, like, the competitive change, like, uh, Gunhammer had, like, a voton hot take discussion board, uh, you know, where they had, like, their circle of competitive players kind of discuss the changes. And I said that these changes were uh basically received very positively, with some discussion of, yeah, maybe if some of them are a little too strong, they need to be they'll be need to be refined. Um Ash Barker at uh Gorilla Miniature Gaming had a response video to this and he took very much the opposite tack on this. And I think Arbiter Ian also agreed. Uh, f- yeah, from following his Twitter that sometimes things are just powerful and you can let a game just be the game that it is let people play it and then come up with other stuff later now I will say his yeah. answer to it was basically power creep which is also not a great <laughs> solution I, I, no. I have an issue with that But he drew an interesting parallel because Ash is somebody who used to be a competitive gamer and has, Mm -hmm. as he's gotten older, has settled into being more of just a casual narrative gamer who plays a whole bunch of stuff. But he drew an interesting parallel between Games Workshop and Privateer Press uh, because about 10 years ago or so... Like when we were first starting this podcast, Warhammer 40k was, I mean, it was still the probably one of the most popular miniature games, but War Machine, especially in the competitive scene, was very much, you know, going toe to toe with it for the mm-hmm. biggest pull. And he points out that, like, at those, at events like 10 years ago, you could go in, like, you go into like Gen Con or, well, maybe not Gen Con, I don't know how much 40k was going on at Gen Con at the time, but any like an Adepticon or a something lot like that. A less
0: War Machine. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or, or it'd be relatively equal even. Like you'd, yeah. you know, like, but you had one company which was Games Workshop, which and I will not <laughs> I will not defend the leadership of Games Workshop at the time because it was a very hands-off, no we don't talk to anybody company mm-hmm. and uh. You know, basically saying we put out these games, we put out like a a codex or two a year, we maybe put out an FAQ once a year, if you're lucky, and the community kind of built its own competitive scene around what was there, which is why we have things like the ITC. And on the other hand, you had Privateer Press, which is like, we are making a balls-to-the-wall Fully competitive game. Like, that's all we're focusing on is co- competition. We're going to be constantly rebalancing this thing and retweaking it and adjusting things on the fly. And, and the issue fa- became as privateer press kept pushing war machine. They kept finding things like, Oh, uh, like first edition war machine. Uh, people aren't taking the big, the big war jacks because they're not that good. They're playing completely infantry armies now. So, well, we don't want to do that. So now, version two comes out and they change up how, like, they redo the point system and they read like, okay, now here's, you get points to take warjacks and you have to, so you have to have a pool of warjacks and, and you can take some infantry, but it's not as good. And that goes on for a while. And they also release hordes, which is a, like, a competitive game or a companion game that uses like more like monsters rather than mecha. And then like to get those two things balanced. Okay. Now we're going to come out with a version three and nobody liked version three. And then the game died (laughs) because that was like the point is like if you, Oh, and because they had focused purely on the competitive players when the competitive scene died, because nobody liked how the game was balanced and played on that scene, there was no casual scene to pick it up and keep going. Mm. And that was what he was. He is a, I I think he was basically saying if Games Workshop goes too far down that route, they will end up alienating their player base because they – and we've already seen it happen to an extent with 9th edition where people were – like when 9th edition was getting horribly unbalanced, people were stopping playing. Like I'm not going to go if I'm just going to get wiped by Drukhari or wiped by Mechanicus or wiped by Eldari or wiped by Tyranids. And that hasn't been good for the scene. And so they've – it's I, – and I, I think it's – like I said, I don't entirely agree with Ash's point of view, but I get what he's saying. And so it is a fine line that they're going to have to balance between making sure that the game is fun and balanced at all levels and style of play and also not – focusing so much on the competitive players because the thing is you are going to get players who don't keep up with the online information yeah they're going There are going to be voton casual voton players who (laughs) don't know or don't care that points have been changed that uh their codex has been nerfed they'd just be like oh this is the book i've got i'm gonna play it and then they're gonna show up to an event and suddenly like let's say they decide i'm gonna go to my first tournament and unless somebody is you know setting them aside and saying, okay, well, you have to understand there's been some changes between now and then. It's and that's gonna not a weird. feels good. No, it's yeah. not. And so I mean there's the and it is as you you know, you mentioned that in the the article they said like, hey, we we put this to print like six months ago and we were testing it against like Tyranids and Eldari when they were super strong, so we had to make a super strong army to counter them we didn't take into account that we ended up having to fix those armies. <laughs> uh, that lag, that, that development time yeah. is, is a problem. It is a very big problem. And well, it's and
2: the hard- only way they could get rid of that lag is to space out codex releases even more, which would be cool. Except then to get every faction of codex, it would be like five to 10 years rather than two to three.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, or the other way, and do everything all at once, which is oh, just please now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We're just but saying, in index forty.
4: Index
1: forty. Theoretically,
2: <laughs>
4: right?
1: Ex- well, exactly. That's what that says ends it's up
3: coming
2: being.
1: Rare. Yeah, that's. We don't generally ad- address rumors, but there has been more and more talk of tenth edition being an across-the-board wipe and restart again, and. Yeah. Uh, I gosh, I I hope not because um, I feel bad for you, Kevin. If they do, because oh, you are gonna it, get that World Eaters Codex for like three months.
0: It's fine. It's not like they did that to a previous Corn Army that I played. Oh wait.
1: <clears throat> <laughs> <sighs> uh,
3: speaking of so things that
1: we, yeah, oh, go ahead. <laughs> so th- speaking of things that we know are, c- yeah, that are, are coming in the future, let's talk about the preview. Um, because uh, this was a preview that was purely focused on Warhammer 40k because it was the 35th anniversary of Warhammer 40k, mm-hmm. and so we got some uh, we basically got four and like, yeah, I think a total of six previews if you include that very last little teaser. So, uh, just taking it from the top, first off cadians uh Astromilitarum, i.e imperial guard are getting a new army box much like the leagues of otan black templars or, or- orcs boxes and uh they're getting a completely new model line In- or at least like a lot of their infantry and some of their vehicles are getting completely reimagined and uh I gotta say, I like the new look for the Cadian models. They do not look cartoony in the least. <laughs> no, they look really good. I mean, they're still clearly recognizable as Cadians, but they've fixed the, like, the big thing is they've fixed the proportions. Uh, they don't look quite so chunky. And I saw somewhere pointed out that the original, like, the Cadian shock troops kit that we've been had for years is literally four years. It came out in 2003. So, um, it's it's an old old kit. It needed to be touched up and so they have done that thing. And uh it looks good. Like the new Cadians look good and they're also making sure to put enough um special weapons into the squad so that you don't have to buy like extra sprues or like sav- like s- salvage them off of like command squads or things like that. <laughs> And we've got the the Kadian command squad is been updated well as well complete with like the guy with the flag that's still a thing. <laughs> but I really do dig the look of them they and it looks like the uh uh the proportions match like what we're seeing like the Traitor Guardsmen which by the way are not mm-hmm. a guard unit they are a cultist unit. We did get 40k rules for them and I do appreciate them doing that. Yeah. Um it does make me sad that I won't be able to bu- build them into a traitor guard army technically, but who knows? We don't know what exactly... If that's something they'll include in the Codex, I would really love them to do that, but I don't think they're gonna.
0: <laughs> I don't think they'll do it until they uh, come out with more like vehicles and some other stuff. Like I, I think right. there's more kits they'll need to release before they can put them out as a full faction. Right. Right.
1: Um, we've got field ordnance batteries, which, uh, not to be mistaken for heavy weapons teams, those are also still a thing and are getting redone, but basically it looks like they're on, like, 80 millimeter bases. They're yeah. huge pieces of, like, huge field guns, which are very cool looking.
0: No, this is, this is a quintessential, like, Imperial Guard thing, so I'm, I think this is really cool. <laughs>
1: Right. This is the kind of stuff that you would only see out of, like, Forge World units in, like, Forge World models in the past. So it's very cool to see this in plastic. Um Sentinels, we we had kind of seen a number of hints and teases that they were getting redone. We now know we're getting both armored and scout Sentinels. And they look just basically like updated versions of those, which is totally fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are getting a new Commissar model. Who sadly does not have the massive hat of his predecessor. <laughs> he has so much more sewn down hat.
0: I've seen this commissar model getting a lot of like hate online of like, oh, it's just a dude standing. And I'm like that's completely fine for a commissar. Like, I like that he's just a stoic guy, like, looking angry and ready to shoot somebody. Like that's mm-hmm perfectly I mean, on I, brand
2: <laughs> I'll be on both sides I do like seeing a commissar like that but I would also like to see maybe a second commissar being the one that can have variant poses mm-hmm. or variant weapons or something like that because this guy is very looks very stock fixed, this is it
0: yeah, I think they are um, I mean, I don't know, this is getting into speculation, but it seems like with the like Lord Commissar model and the other ones that they have, that they've kind of moved away from customizing what commissars can take. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That's, I, I definitely understand your point And I think that there needs to be some flexibility with them, but I don't think, I don't think that's the way they're going. Right. But i like, I'm looking at other recent
1: commissar models, like the Severina rain model we got, or the Ibram mm-hmm. gaunt model as part of Gaunt's ghosts. They still have the big hats, why can't this guy yeah. have a big hat? I I I don't ask much. Just a big hat just for like the, Commissar.
0: I just <laughs> like the variety. Like I like the fact that there's different looks. Like I think that's kind of cool. That that's that's fair.
1: And you know, with a head swap, it, the guy's got the great coat, he'd fit right in mm-hmm. with a uh with a Krieg army. Like if you had a Krieg Commissar mm-hmm. head, I was I was them.
0: thinking that too.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh and then we get uh the heavy weapons teams which uh they used to be on sixty millimeter bases. I'm thinking they've been downsized to
0: fifties now, because they it just looks tighter. Yeah, it definitely does. I think it's partially because the guardsmen are a little bit bigger, with you know, with, uh, proportioned better, so they they fit on the base a little bit more. Maybe mm-hmm. they got downsized. I don't know what to see once the once the box comes out. But again,
1: I love I love how dynamic all these these new models are. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, not, not just dudes standing there and also not just dudes. We're seeing a, we're seeing a a number of women in the guard, which is also fantastic. And then rules wise, we actually get a little bit of a preview of the fact that, uh, you'll be able to mix and match, uh, regiments. Uh, you don't pick a regiment for your army. You build one from a list of rules. Which sounds very familiar because it's what a lot of codexes have been doing, but does it mean that we are not going to see sub- actual sub- factions in this army?
0: Yeah, it, they, they, they specifically pointed it out in the, uh, in the preview broadcast where they're like, well, you don't pick army-wide uh, faction rules anymore, or like regiment rules. You, you pick the regiment rules like by unit. So, and, and again, I don't know if that's how exactly it's going to work, but then they, when we get on later when we're talking about the Kursicans, they mentioned that they get to pick two regiment traits. So it does kind of lead me to think that you're going to pick regimental tra- tra- traits based off of unit or maybe, you know, uh, groups of units rather than this is a Cadian army, this is a Mordenheim army, this is a, you know, a Krieg army, and they get XYZ. Which kind of indicates to me that they are trying to break away from the kind of sub-faction stuff that they were doing with previous Mm 9th edition codexes. Right.
1: Uh, And then, uh, yeah, leading into some of the other stuff, like the Kassirkin, which are going to be in Kill Team, in the next Kill Team box set, which uh, I don't know if it – yeah, it does also include the terrain for doing the interior of ships, because, like, this whole year's season is – uh, doing more boarding actions and and fighting on mm-hmm. space hulks uh and the new casterkin models look just as good and just as dynamic as the new uh like standard kadian guard so um, i imagine that's going to be another very popular kit and we get uh get new uh Necron models as well looks like a new, new cryptek um new like new warrior or immortals and deathmark
0: kits. Well, I think it's I think it's going to be the same kits. I think they confirmed it's the same kit for the Immortals oh, with,
1: upgrade, yeah, with upgrade. Yeah,
0: some sprue. upgrade sprues. So, which is what they've been doing with Kill Team. You basically get a new unit and an upgrade. You know, an, a, an old unit with upgrade sprues, and that's basically what they've done in every single one of these. Is you know, you get your new sisters unit, your novitiates, and you get your Tau pathfinders with an upgrade sprue. You get breachers and you know uh well i guess that one actually did the, the crew with some up actually that wasn't a crew unit so i don't know maybe not always but it seems like in the past they've chosen to like focus on one new unit and then upgrades to an, an existing unit um right. but one thing that's interesting in here is the r ar- is it architect what do they call it the the is that isn't like a f- the printex that's right yeah uh, stupid made-up names. Um, <laughs> that looks like a new model. Like that. That yes. does. I think that is a new model. Yeah, and it new looks like it's for the kind of, plasma sites, too. Yeah, yeah. I like the one that's climbing up the wall. That is very cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, so I there are like, new stuff yeah. in here, but it's yeah.
2: I like the lore that he said of feeling sorry for the apprentice cryptek. Of <laughs> you're going to be a, an apprentice cryptek for the eternity because Necrons don't actually die. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that must be a very uh, hard glass ceiling to break through.
1: (laughs) And then speaking of boarding actions, it's not just Kill Team that's going to have boarding actions. We're actually getting it at the army at at a much larger scale with uh, the new campaign that's coming out, Arcs of Omen, which is apparently involving uh, Abaddon getting a bunch of uh, space hulks together. And doing things with them and making deals with dark forces.
2: I mean, if the orc can put space hulks together, why can't Abaddon?
1: Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And so there's going to be a box of boarding action terrain and a set of rules with them that like, hey, no vehicles or monsters. It's Zone Mortalis. We're getting an updated Mm -hmm. version of Zone Mortalis for 40k. Not to be mistaken for the Zone Mortalis that is still available for Necromunda. These are a different set of zone mortalis, so don't be confused. Even though I'm sure you could mix and match them.
2: I mean, I like both the concept of this and what the thing, the terrain looks like because I like the idea of having like a bigger battle inside Mm -hmm. of a ship. I mean, it kind of reminds me of it. I think it was Kevin I played. I don't remember, but when the tyranids versus eandin when we did that story narrative battle where technically that was inside of eandin's ship i mean we still had a big open area but <laughs> that whole idea of fighting inside a ship instead of everything's on the land i think's really cool and the train looks awesome and the box itself reminds me of the um imperial cityscape I forgot the name of it. Um, remember we got that giant box and we just, was just built yeah, train like Oh, honest. I
0: think it's just Imperial called City. Imperial City. Yeah.
2: <laughs> this reminds me of that. When I'm guessing it's going to be a box probably as big and you can just build hopefully a table's worth of train out of that and just, and it let you focus more on your close combat, your melee, your, as they kept saying in there, the Tau Breachers will play a better role mm-hmm. because you've got walls in the way. Although part of me hopes they have rules for blowing up walls, that would be kind of cool too.
0: But that would be cool.
2: <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, the only thing I don't see is how this would spill into the bigger, like, forty k like tournaments things. But I think for like home play, just play with your friends or at a store, this is this is going to be fun.
0: And
1: they they also said like this is actually going to be its own game format called boarding action which will you'll be playing basically combat patrol 500 point armies with some restrictions on what you can take in these confines because obviously like taking like a thousand two thousand point army in this tight quarters doesn't make any sense so hey
2: someone has to go take those hangar bays
1: (laughs) but yeah apparently it's like the rules for this will be in arcs of omen
0: yeah and i think that's how you're going to kind of be able to separate it out at, like, competitive events and things like that, is this will be its own format. So you might see an event show up where, like, for for example, let's say a future Midwest Conquest or something, hey, we're going to do a Kill Team or a Necromunda tournament on Saturday, and then we're going to do a boarding action event on Sunday, and there's your two-day event or something like that. And you can kind of mm-hmm. do it some different scales and sizes. So um, I'm I'm excited for the possibilities this opens up. The only criticism that i have so far and we're we're i'm gonna say this knowing that we are still like i have like another like two kill team releases in this cycle and there's gonna be other stuff coming out with the books and stuff i want gw to release other faction terrain for this because as cool as the terrain is it's all like imperial you know fighting in the interior of an imperial ship give me eldar terrain for this give me orc terrain for this give me tau terrain for this like i think that would be really cool to be able to like actually make this feel like you're in different um environments rather than just like the same neo-gothic you know imperial ships and stuff that you're you know settings that you're kind of in all the time this would be a great opportunity to release terrain on a scale for these other factions to make it feel more immersive
2: yeah, I can see that, Kevin. But I think for the narrative that they're going with now, I don't think Abaddon's going to take other people or other cultures stuff to put into his big space Hulk things because he doesn't Maybe. have their tech. He's going to yeah, use the tech it, he knows, and that's what they're going to cobble together.
0: True, but and we'll get into the next, you know, the next kind of preview about this. <sighs> but like, it doesn't seem he's not the only one doing this. So you know, it's it doesn't yeah, seem like he's the only better. one. Right. So like it just it, <laughs> it seems to me like there's there's no reason that they have to between the kill team, you know, stuff in you know, uh, Gallo Dark or whatever they're calling it, like between this kill team season of being able to go around and have these other factions cuz why would a why would an Eldar and, you know, Cruit kill teams be scavenging a an imperial ship? Like they could be scavenging anything else. Like it just seems like there's opportunities to be able to put in faction for other terrains into this, and I think it'd be some really cool um, and really popular ways to get that stuff out there, because I, I think people really want to see terrain from other factions in the game.
1: Well, I mean, making orc terrain for this will be easy. Assemble and paint your your boarding action terrain, and then hit it with <laughs> a hammer several times, and then put it back together. Problem solved. I yep. mean, fair. <laughs> Uh, and then as far as the next model they revealed we only got one for this faction but we did get it it's a it's a world eaters berserker on a juggernaut sort of
0: it's a character at least (laughs) it's a character he looks cool he's the juggernauts are a cool unit I love the ridiculousness of we put a chain sword on his head because why the hell not (laughs) he's the horn yeah, like, I love everything about this. I think it's perfect. It confirms that we're going to get Lords on Juggernauts back because they mentioned that this model can be uh, put together multiple ways, so which means character versus generic Lord on Juggernaut, which is something that I think they need. I hope, and I don't hold out actually any hope for this, but I hope that this means that we're going to get a unit of actual Berserkers on Juggernauts and ability to take like uh you know uh troops on juggernauts or fast attack on juggernauts, because world eaters really need something in that fast attack slot, and unlike corn demonkin, it doesn't really make sense for them to use like hounds or blood crushers, so yeah like give give me a unit of guys on you know corn berserkers or whatever or chosen or something, or even cultists riding you know juggernauts into battle because that's. No freaking dope
2: (laughs) i like the idea of the berserkers as a fast attack slot on them because then that has an analog to the uh, thunderwolf calvary Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: they also point out like i'm guessing this guy is a named character because he is actually just referred to as lord invocatus as opposed to like a lord invocatus
0: yeah so they did mention that this guy is specifically like a character but they mentioned in the in the stream that he can be assembled multiple ways. Which obviously, if he's a named character, if he's only a named character, then you can't assemble him multiple ways. But right. if there's a named version of it, which also makes sense because World Eaters have right now two named characters, and one of them hasn't been released yet, so they need more named characters. Um, yeah, because all of the other factions have you know all of the other sub uh, Chaos Marine factions have multiple named characters so giving them another named character and then giving them a generic lord option based off of this because they also know that everybody that's ever played a world leaders army has a at least one if not multiple as i'm looking at mine uh chaos lords on juggernauts that have been converted like i have like three or four of them so yeah everyone has these let's put them back in the let's put them back in the world leaders book if for whatever reason we decide you know Whatever the reason they decided to remove them from the Chaos Marine Codex proper, this is a place to bring it back and like, okay, this is a world leader thing now.
1: Yeah, I also want to point out how bad the old Lord on Juggernaut model looks.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it does look bad, although I do have, I have like, I do like it from that old Hammer, like, goofy way, the way Warhammer used to be vibe but yeah it's not a great model <laughs> yeah i mean th- i wouldn't say
1: like the the juggernaut doesn't even look that intimidating he looks kind of cute and snuffly you know <laughs> by comparison.
0: yeah the the old metal juggernaut is an interesting model i actually have a couple of those because i i converted my um oh what's the is it the skull throne the the demon yeah the derp throne. The derp cannon yeah, the Derp yep. Throne. I converted that into a chariot with two of these metal berserkers, uh, berserkers, juggernauts pulling it. And I had to use the metal ones because the plastic ones were way too big to fit on the base. <laughs> also, that model now weighs like 15 pounds. Like, it's insane. Because <laughs> <laughs> those are just chunks of lead. Like, they're insane. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I like this new model. I'm excited for what it, what it, Pretends for the, you know, future of the World Eater stuff. And uh, yeah, I like it. That's, I kind of wish it they'd shown familiar. more, but yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> slow bleed, slow bleed. Yeah, exactly.
1: And then finally, they had a teaser for the demon in the machine. Uh, not many clear pictures of it. It has spindly wings. It's very mechanical. And I just want to say I can dark Mechanicus now. Please thank you.
0: One can only hope. I've heard a lot of rumors of, like, a new named Demon Prince, and not necessarily, like, a full Mechanicum, Dark Mechanicum thing, but I don't know. It definitely seems like it leans more towards the Dark Mechanicus side. Right. Um, And I think uh, I was looking at somebody who was talking about, like, the previous rumor engines. Just from, like, the silhouette we've seen, it looks like there's, like, two or three things from previous rumor engines that haven't been confirmed yet that appear to match up to this model. So... Whatever they do with this, this is going to be big. Yeah. But it, like it's a, weird coming out with big? this.
1: This No, not that big. <laughs> but it is weird coming out with something new like this, Right, you know, not long after the Chaos Space Marine Codex and Chaos Demons have been released. So it's like, yeah. I'm hoping it well, I mean, it'll be in the Arcs of Omen book, I imagine. So we'll see how well, much, if it's just like a one-off thing or a standalone
0: or like part of an army. That's the interesting thing with the Arcs of Omen books. They specifically said, "We, d- I love the, them saying this way after the cats out of the bag." Well, we realize that a lot of people don't like carrying around multiple books, so the Arcs of Omen books will not have any Crusade rules, any army rules, any like stuff that you need to play 40k. Like it's just the new system for playing, you know, the the boarding actions games and some fluff and like. That's that's great. I love that. I wish you'd done that, you know, fifteen years ago. Um, but why are, are you going to be? Are you, where are you going to put the rules for these new units? Like, are you going to introduce a new unit and then not give any rules for it till the next round of codexes? Like, is it just going to be a data slate? That doesn't seem like it's going to be great either. I don't know. I'm I'm interested to well, see how this this plays out.
2: All of the Solanesh units that came out pre codex, they were just in the rules that you got when you bought the model or in the app.
0: Yeah. I mean, if they update the app so that it works, that'd be great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like they just
1: updated the app with, uh, the of Votan. I finally
2: got the rules updated in there.
1: Yeah. They got the rules updated, but like, I still don't think they, I still don't think, uh, Tau don't work right. Still. Because, like, their weapons don't go up in cost if you take multiples, so, like, it's still
0: not yeah. a useful app for some armies. I mean, it doesn't wipe out all of my saved lists when I update the app anymore, so that's good. That's 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 an improvement. I mean, the thing
2: I'll say about the app is there's probably too many combinations that they haven't gone through and tested them all. So if we find something, we should probably open a ticket, because every ticket I've opened has been fixed, Mm-hmm. Because if we just complain about it, it's not going to get fixed. This is Obviously, true. I,
1: I put in t- right. I put in tickets for the uh, Death Guard issues, and I believe they have been fixed at this point. Yeah.
2: So, so I mean, I think some of them they just aren't aware of them. So if you run into problems with the app, open those tickets. I mean, that let's is true. That tell is true. GW what needs to be fixed so they can.
1: Yeah, it's just I think sometimes it gets a little frustrating because you'll oh, open the ticket and then you'll, <laughs> yeah, and then you'll be waiting for weeks to yeah you know, like they don't give you any update yeah. like oh hey this has been addressed or anything it's just like oh well I mean, it's, that's we'll true. get to it eventually
2: <laughs> and not having it right the first time is frustrating too
1: <laughs> right so yeah it's it is what it is uh but but yeah so those are the that's the news and uh you know previews of new things coming so we're getting guard later in the year obviously there's going to be an army box so my guess is army box is probably going to be early November maybe and then December for the actual like codec because they said it was going to be out before mm-hmm. the end of the year and then early 2023 so, would be world eaters
2: so here's the thing Rob I this is gonna be a big release we should probably actually do a guard codec I,
1: I
0: know I know <laughs> uh, so <laughs> so listeners if any if, if there's anybody that you well, if there's anybody that you specifically want to To hear from, like, that you think we should reach out to to talk about the Guard Codex, please let us know. Send us suggestions. There are plenty of great, like, Guard content creators out there that we may not be aware of, so please send in suggestions, and we'll we'll try to bring in some ringers to talk about this army, because we know nothing about it. We don't play it. Like, I have a scattering of models for it, but... Yeah, this is definitely outside our wheelhouse, as we've proven.
1: Yeah, I'm decided. officially off the hook for a guard army now, thanks to the Trader the Guardsman data sheets. So, whew, I, yeah,
2: so, So Kevin, you're our closest person. Oh, you get no. to fall
0: on that you I have grenade. never played a game. I have never played a game of guard, so no. <laughs> I've played against guard. Yeah, I've I played no, against sure. guard. Yeah, I mean, I have too. But it's been a... Look, it's been a I, long time since I've... Played a game of 40k. So,
2: <laughs> well, let's get you some games in this month then. That's the plan. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. And from there, speaking of people writing in, let's take a look at our listener mail. As always, these letters are written by you, the listeners. And uh, we're going to tell you how you can have your letter read on the air at the end of the segment. Uh, first one is from Elliot Rosenblum. Elliot writes Hello, Advertises of Optimal Targeting. I don't know if those are the right words, but we're just gonna go with it uh, to eh. dive into the t- to dive into the topic that has been talked about so much. The dead horses now glue here's my two cents worth on the combat point slash stratagem situation <laughs> to start the CP thing give everyone x amount each round where x is the number generated from a detachment battalions give two patrol vanguard etc give one etc. change the number per detachment to whatever balance is better Max everyone out at three detachments. I Give everyone six or eight points to add detachments with or spend for more relics, traits, or other pregame things. This would bring list building back into a skillful thing and make it a balancing act between in-game resources and pregame improvements. Now, on to strats. I think taking Q from Age of Sigmar would be a good idea. Have a universal set of them that can be used by everyone. Rerolls, auto pass, break tests, it's extra relic, etc. Each army would then have a pre-game one. Let's upgrade those normal red uh, those normal World Eater Terminators to be Red Butchers to add a bit of mm-hmm. flavor but for the more in- intense stuff make it based on the HQ's taken. Uh, take Dark chaplain- or take Dark Angel's Chaplains for example. If you take a stock Chaplain, spend 1 CP and the leadership of a friendly unit counts as 10, but take an interrogator Chaplain, spend 1 to give an enemy unit in range a minus 1 to their leadership. These are just an example, but you can work from there. You can also change some of the aura effects to be CP a- activated if you don't take the HQ, you don't have access to that strat. Uh, besides these, remove other ones from the game. I think this would help limit the effect on the game, but still make them have an impact. It would also make list building an important step to decide what you have access to during a game. I may be overcomplicating this, and this is getting really wordy, but thanks for doing the podcast and everything else, Elliot. Um, so I have a concern on the CP thing. The Lucky 32. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Because That's, we've that been, been down, down this road thought. before. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I I don't mind the idea of limit of regenerating CP based off of like you know what you take. Maybe there's a way that you just you you know you you do it off of your largest detachment or something. You know where you take a, a patrol and you know uh, or you take a battalion and a patrol. You re, you refresh two points because you your largest is you know is the Battalion. I don't know. Like, There's ways around it so you can avoid CP farming, I think, but whatever system you come up with, there's always going to be ways that people can break it.
1: Right, and the current CP situate the current CP system was uh created in ninth, you know, the ninth edition version was created because we did have the problem with the lucky thirty two, where somebody could take like a unit, mm. like three platoons of guard and two HQs were dirt cheap, and you could basically throw them into any Imperium army, and suddenly you had an extra like six, you know, like an extra three or six command points, you know, and. and and armies that could not do that because they either weren't Imperium or the stuff that they had took up so many points that they couldn't do that really suffered on CP. Armies like Custodes, for example, had that problem. And I think this would still hurt armies like Custodes because they can't take that many detachments. They just don't have the points for it. Uh And so this... I think it's well-intentioned but it just takes us back to where we were before but I think also compounds it because it's turn after turn the army that has that can squeeze in more cheap detachments will run roughshod over the others and having a disparity in CP can make a huge difference
2: and mm-hmm. I'll also toss this out uh, I kind of like the idea of tying it to your highest or your warlord whoever your highest person is because yeah. we know if you get too many cooks in the kitchen they'll all start arguing and the commands are, probably should be lessened because they don't agree on how to actually handle the army unless you've got one specific guy in charge who everyone just obeys mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and on top of this like uh, some of the issues like the lucky 32 situation have been addressed because a lot of armies their special abilities shut down if the arm if it's not all taken from one codex, right? Or even one subfaction in some cases, but it's it still has some real opportunities for abuse. And again, not all armies are created equal, as you know, point wise. Like, how do you balance this for knights? Right. Where, like, knights have a super heavy and maybe a super heavy auxiliary, but you don't want to no. give too many points to a super heavy auxiliary because anybody can splash. A lot of armies can splash in a super heavy auxiliary with a knight because they game like our agents of the Imperium or agents of chaos. And that still leaves the Xenos players out, except for the players who decide to play Asriani instead of, like or Eldari instead of Asriani or playing Inari. How does that even work out? Because you've got Drukari and Harlequin's attachments. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a mess. It's potentially a mess. So I think this is
0: well-intentioned, but oh, such a mess to actually work out. I do like the second half of the suggestion, though, of like simplifying and streamlining the stratagems, because I think if you get rid of a lot of the faction-specific stratagems, make a lot more like what AOS has to make them more universal and then tie other stratagems specifically to certain types of leaders it really makes the regenerating of cp moot at that point because you only it's a limited resource it's a limited resource tied to your commander or tied to specific characters i think the second half of that is is much more on the right track than than the first part of it to be honest
3: yeah and i think that also helps uh with kind of the one of the organizational like issues that i have with like stratagems where if that stratagem is specifically tied to a specific leader you just put that stratagem on that leader's data sheet
0: yeah well so i guess kind of along the lines of what what they suggested in the letter and this is just something i kind of thought of and maybe like i said maybe this is comp- overcomplicating it but i wonder if you fold psychic powers into this and you fold chaplain powers into this. And if you take a, for example, in, in space Marines, you take a captain, you get access to the captain stratagems. If you take a librarian, you get access to the librarian stratagems, finger quotes that are psychic powers. If you take a chaplain HQ, you get access to the chaplain stratagems, which are the chaplain powers. And that could be a way to potentially alleviate one of the biggest problems that, that we've talked about for game balance in the game of like, not every faction has access to psychic powers and psychic defense, or, you know, not every, not every faction has chaplains or, or this or that. If you kind of flatten that whole system down into different types of HQs get access to different stratagems that do different things, maybe that flattens the whole system out across because you're limiting it where you still can only take, you know, obviously some factions can take more than others, but you're still can you're still limited in how many HQs you can take. Most armies are built in a way where you're limited on, you know, one commander per detachment. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's a way to to streamline and kind of fix multiple issues. But I, I then I also worry that it might genericize a lot of it too so well um. and you'd have to workshop it a bit because like you have armies like
1: gray knights and thousand sons where you've got psychers like spread out throughout like every slot and Mm. then it's like how do you like if all their psychic abilities end up costing command points as well true how do you how do you work that out so it's like it again it's not something that's necessarily a bad starting point but you definitely would want to workshop that but the idea of but the idea of um like stratagems basically being built into like an HQ datasheet and having effectively a casting cost mm-hmm. of CP i think that would be I, I think that's actually an interesting way to handle it and a lot of yeah. uh, age of sigmar characters have like hero abilities and hero abilities cost command points so it's that same same vibe
0: so i yeah, think I lo- that's I love a,
1: th- a good system to go with
0: yeah i love the idea of like triggering the aura abilities and stuff like that off of cp because i think that makes them a little bit more special and like makes them much more strategic in how you choose to use them
1: right and having some like where you have an army that might have like a half dozen aura abilities if you can like well you can activate one a turn it, it makes them work similarly to how like the synaptic imperatives do for tyranids Mm -hmm. where it's like i can activate one of these a turn now in tyranids it's and it's active on everyone okay well that's not the best idea but (laughs) but you know it's yeah something where there's a cost involved in activating those i think would be a good way to address that so so Elliot. Not so strong on the first idea, but the second one, I think, has some promise, and it'll be interesting to see what we see out of a 10th edition, which we've also heard stratagems going away as a possible rumor, so who knows? Uh, Second letter, Ross Wyand writes, Hello, Preferred Enemies! I'm looking for some advice on a new chair for my painting space. My current chair isn't the most comfortable or supporting in order to save my back. I've been looking for a new chair. I have looked at and tried some office chairs, but with little success. I'm open to any and all advice. Love the podcast, and I look forward to each episode. keep up the great work. best regards ross thank you ross um so this is very much along the same lines of things I've seen like I need a new gamer chair like you know yep. and uh, there is, it's funny that he mentions that he's tried office chairs because the thing I've heard, and actually there was a, I, I saw a TikTok that got reposted on Twitter because so I'm old on social media, but, uh, it was somebody discussing the, like buying the best gamer chair. And they actually said the best gamer chair is not the chairs that you see streamers have where like, you know, they're all kind of styled that same, like high peak back, bright colors, all the, you know, the. You know, looking vaguely ergonomic, but not really, and that's because gaming chairs are designed to look neat on stream and to look neat at e gaming like esports events. Um, what you really want is a good office chair, like, yep. uh, like like you do not want like a f- like a cheap fifty or hundred dollar office chair. You want to get something like I mean, you always hear about the Herman Mer- Miller arrow chairs from years and years ago, but you want something that is built like that because those chairs are specifically designed for somebody to sit in for eight plus
0: hours and not wreck their back. No, I will definitely, um, I will definitely second that. Like the, the, you know, the thing with when I go, when we were going into the office before the pandemic, you know, we had the, those, those kind of air on chairs as well, where it's, you know, the mesh back and stuff like that. And, I was like, "Oh, this is a really nice chair. This is really comfortable. How much is this?" "Oh, we got that at a group rate. That chair is seven hundred dollars for each chair." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, I get it." But at the same time, like now that I've been working from home and I've you know I have one of the high back gamer chairs that I like, but it's not as comfortable as the super these super expensive work chair. Um, you know, there's there is a reason that why those high end chairs cost so much, but they're worth it. Um, I don't know that you necessarily need to spend, you know, $2,000 or, or, you know, $1,000 on one of those chairs, but you definitely want to spend more on an office chair that you're going to be setting in for a long time than, you know, than just going to Target and buying a a $50 one.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, Now, one thing to look at, uh, as someone who's been involved in a number of office moves throughout his career, look for sales it, like you may have to do some searching but look for sales that are being held mm-hmm. by companies that are selling old office furniture because here's the secret if a company moves from one office to another they don't move all their furniture in many cases no. especially if they're yeah. using cubicles and things like that because that's really expensive so what they'll do it's actually cheaper for them to buy brand new furniture because they can get them at those bulk rates and so they'll sell or discard everything they have and let, you know up minus like the executive who has his favorite chair or their or her favorite chair um yeah like their you know their particular chair or desk yeah they'll probably save those but like for the cube farms where they will or the conference rooms where they'll buy that stuff in bulk they'll get rid of it rather than try to move it so you can probably find some good sales now that good sales you're still probably talking like a 300 400 chair
4: Mm -hmm. but
1: if you're wanting if you are wanting a good chair that you are going to be able to sit in for hours and do hobby work that's probably the way to go because you know like you kevin i have one of the the high back gaming chairs when i actually and i got it because we moved to doing remote and so i'm like i don't want to get a good chair and i realize i may have been you know May have been more swayed by the by the look and the thought of oh this is what people sit in to game for eight hours, yeah, and they're probably much younger than I ha- am and have better backs. <laughs> so <laughs> the one I don't thing know I if you know this, is- but I'm in my forties now.
0: <laughs> well, the one thing that I did is I went out and I also got like the 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 like the 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 head pillow and like the back pillow for the game chair that like help like that helped a ton yeah. like without with it just being straight backed and none of the like other support yeah it was a nightmare at first but once I got like the lumbar support you know the little like pillow that straps in through there like it's a lot better um mm-hmm. but yeah it's still you know if I had if I had probably to do it over again I would probably spend twice as much and get a and get a better chair even though I do like this one
1: yeah I I would definitely say, like, I, mine does have, like, that bolster for the lumbar support, and it does mm-hmm. help, but, like, I have to constantly reposition it, too. So, yeah. it's still not great, but it is something.
2: Yeah, my gaming chair turned into a, a cat-scratching post, so <laughs> I had to get a new chair, which I, I have a office chair, but I only use it for painting if I'm at the computer. My normal painting chair is just a folding chair, that has a cushion on it
0: yeah not
1: (laughs) not not the best but i I
2: mean with as much as i paint it works because i also (laughs) don't sit in it for very long because i can only paint for like a few model well i shouldn't say models a few colors on some models before i need a break (laughs) right well if you had a better chair you could paint for longer that's not no, the, I need that's better eyesight case. and better wrists yeah. and better.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 not the chair. The chair is a convenient excuse why I don't paint more. It is not the reason. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I I still have just a, an old uh, leftover office chair from when the Kansas City Star sold a building and like had to move their offices out of of that one and consolidate it into another building. So like, they just got rid of a bunch of stuff and I just got an office chair and it's not like, this is like 20 years old. So like, it's not like one of the nice ergonomic, you know, mesh back. Like it's just a really basic office chair that is, is nicer than like the $50 one that you buy at Walmart, but like not terribly much more than that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: There's like, there's a number of brands depending on like, I'm looking at like Staples and office Depot uh, looking under ergonomic office chairs um and yeah, you're probably looking at about for something decent, like something that's actually really going to protect your back, you're probably looking at about you know $300 or
2: so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd say minimum.
1: Yeah. And uh you know, for something good that, you know, to sit in for that for that long, that's I mean, that's where you're going to end up landing. So and honestly, that is going to put you in the same range as some of these gaming chairs, too. Like, yeah, the the game, the gaming chair that I have that I picked up off of. uh, Actually, I picked it up from Dell because I had, you know, have a Dell account for because I've got an Alienware computer. Um, It was three hundred and seventy dollars and it's been fine. It's been good. Although, like, I'm actually like the leather's like peeling at one point. (laughs) Because <laughs> just from just from where to it's not even where I sit, it's like where my leg rubs against it. And it mm-hmm. caught like one of the seams and has just been kind of kind of wore it and wore it and then started peeling up. Um, so, yeah, these chairs just they wear out, you know, chairs wear out over time. And especially if it's like what's wearing off is primarily cosmetic because, like I said, it doesn't affect how I'm sitting in it. But uh, but yeah, you know, if you need a good chair, a good ergonomic chair that's going to save your back. Be prepared to spend, you know, about $300 plus on it. But see if you can find sales. See if you can find used office furniture. Because used does not mean, like, trashy. Like I said, you know, it's sometimes it's just company moves office and wants to unload a bunch of stuff on the secondary market. And they'll do it.
0: Well, and there are a lot of companies that are downsizing offices right now. So this mm-hmm. is a good time to try to find those channels and and yeah, see ours, you
1: can ours, find. ours consolidated from, like, like, well, they they moved buildings, but we went from, like, three floors to one, and that's a mm. lot of furniture to get rid of. So, yeah, uh, just keep your eye out for, like, used office furniture sales, and you can probably find some good ergonomic chairs at a decent price. All right, next letter is from Ben Dake. Ben writes... Hello, preferred frenemies. I love the show and your approach to all aspects of the hobby. Thank you, Ben. I want to start off by saying that I don't mean what I'm asking as negatively as it may sound. I have been hobbying off and on since 1998 and I have played 40k as my main game. I have a huge Black Legion army I built during 2020 and I kept telling myself to just wait for the 9th edition codex before buying one. When it finally released, I just didn't want to buy it. I just didn't want to play 40k anymore and i don't know why i've lost my enthusiasm for the game though after last episode the leagues of Votan have my interest now i still play age of sigmar and 30k so i haven't sworn off the hobby or anything like that my question is have you ever lost your enthusiasm for the hobby and why how'd you get it back thanks for thank you for all that you do for the community and keep using your hobby powers for awesome i think we've all hit burnout at some point or other
2: Yeah, I I know he didn't use the word burnout, but I know we've talked about it on previous streams of just, and each one of us has hit it at different times and Mm -hmm. different reasons. I think, I'm trying to think of mine. Mine was, I I think I lost interest just when I didn't feel like I was going anywhere. And Mm -hmm. I I think maybe there's been no releases. I was just like, it's hard to say because the best I can describe is I just wasn't feeling it. And truthfully, I think what got me back was just kind of st- staying and riding the waves until either a-, a codex release happened or new minis dropped that I was just really interested in. And, and that kind of re spark gave me that spark again to. Yeah. And I mean, I've truthfully, I, it's hard for me to remember because I've been riding a wave of high for uh, two or three years now. It feels like because of (laughs) all the releases that have come out and especially this past year. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. I know for me, like I've, like I've hit burnout or lost enthusiasm for like particular armies Mm -hmm. or, uh, but like the game as a whole. Um, I actually lost a lot of it um i was starting to feel it at the end of 2019 honestly because i was getting burned out on tournament events like i was actively Mm -hmm. seeking out friendly events rather than playing at like the like the big gts i was by mid 2019 i was pretty much done with uh like serious competitive play not that i ha- was a serious competitive player like i'm not going to get on a podium anytime soon other than as like maybe go for best painted or best sportsman but uh but i just i don't play my brain does not get the thrill out of competitive play that a lot of people do and i was just that's all i was doing and uh f- like I think for me, the pandemic was kind of a godsend because it got me away from that for a bit. But it was hard. Like, yes, I kept the podcast going and I enjoy talking about the game, but actually wanting to go back and play in that environment has not been a real strong draw for me. Playing in the friendly at Midwest Conquest was really good. I really enjoyed that. But even like... Even that wasn't quite scratching the itch for me, and a, a little bit earlier for the for our main topic is we started up or you know a, somebody not even me I'm I'm just a player, uh, somebody started up a crusade league uh, at one of our local stores, and I finally took the you know took the plunge and got into it, and it's scratching that itch for me, but I had to basically change up how I approached the game entirely. And that doesn't even, you know, discuss things like hobby burnout, where it's like, I don't, you know, tire Times with like, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to look at an unpainted model, because I don't, I know I'm going to have to paint it. And, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, it's like, I've had enough inspiration to work on things lately. I've been burning through things. But, um, like, one thing you mentioned is, like, you still play Age of Sigmar, you still play Horse Heresy. Sometimes switching up games, switching up what you're painting, switching up what you're building or playing is, is what you need to do. Uh, I was in the middle of working on Tau minis. And then I'm like, I'm going to paint some Middle Earth stuff and some Battletech stuff because it was just kind of a palette cleanser. It was a chance to try some different techniques. And like, uh, you know, I don't want to get ahead of hobby progress, but it was a chance to do something different. So then i like, okay, took a breath, went. Now I'm working on my Tau stuff again. And changing things up like that um, is is a good way to address a a lack of enthusiasm. And also, sometimes it's fine to just walk away for a bit. That's a perfectly valid response, and there's nothing wrong with that.
3: Yeah, uh, I would definitely have to agree with that because I currently am just not super interested in actually playing 40K right now. Like, I have, I haven't, like, if somebody, you know, asked me if I wanted to play a game, and I had the time, and I, you know, kind of had an army vaguely put together, then sure, I'll, I'll play, but I'm not going out to seek opportunities to play, so I'm more just happy just putting together my minis and painting them, and and looking at them on a shelf. And that's totally a valid way to enjoy the hobby
1: i mean the the hobby is, is you know fortunately like the hobby of miniature wargaming is very multifaceted not only in the variety of games and models out there but in the way to engage with them whether it's playing or just building and painting maybe trying out new techniques building display pieces, building terrain is a valid way to enjoy the hobby. Maybe that's just you're like, I like building buildings. That's a perfectly valid way to do it too. But yeah, it's like, it. it's totally fine to, it, there's nothing wrong with losing your enthusiasm. It's like, and I know it, feel, it must feel like a gut punch. Like I've been building this Black Legion army since 2020. I'm super excited for the ninth edition codex to come out. And then it hits and you're like, but i'm not super excited for ninth edition and i don't wanna and that's fine like that, and seriously like just don't don't feel bad about that i it, it feels a bit rough you, you kind of put all your your time and energy into something and now it's it's just not feeling like it's going to pay off i will say it, you can go down the wrong rabbit hole though with that and if you're constantly chasing the high of like it's like, okay, I've got built this Black Legion army. I don't want to play Black Legion now. Ooh, Leagues of Otan. Just be warned, like when you get done building and painting that that Leagues of Otan army, that you're not like, ah, no, I don't want to do that either. Well,
2: I mean, unless you'd like things looking on shelves because the models look amazing. Right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, if 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 like I, I would say know what you're know why you're wanting to get it before you get it. Like if if you're seeing there like getting yourself psyched of like, I'm going to build, I'm going to build this army and paint it so I can go play it. And then when you're done, you don't want to play it. May, you know, take a moment, examine why you want to do the thing. Like, is it like, I, you know, I just want to build these models because they look cool. Go for it. And maybe, you know, age, maybe 40 K is, you know, you talk about like you played 40 K as your main game. It doesn't sound like it is anymore. You say you still play age of Sigmar and 30 K. If those are scratching your itch to play, Play those, build the 40k miles, build the leagues of Oton stuff, have it set aside. If somebody wants to get in a game, yeah, maybe, you know, you, you go do the thing. I'll crack them out and play, play a game. You know, maybe you're, you know, you're in the situation that Richard's in. I don't really feel like playing, but if, if I got the time and, you know, somebody wants to get in a game, sure, that's, that's fine. Don't feel bad about that. And sometimes you just, sometimes you just got to let it rest and maybe that itch will come back to you and like, okay, now, yeah, now I do want to play 40k again. And maybe you discover also you don't need to play as much 40K. Uh, for me, I've been playing I've been playing a game a week. And they've been smaller games. They've been like 50PL games. Because Crusade Play, don't care about points, just using power level. Uh, and playing one game that only takes like an hour or two. And I don't have to set aside my entire weekend to get in like, like okay, this is my one gaming event for the next couple of months. And I'm going to play like a half dozen games. Or even just like my one gaming event a month where I'm going to play a half dozen really intense, like three hour long games and I'm exhausted afterwards. Or I'm just going to go down to the local shop, find somebody in the league to play, uh, play my game against, have fun with it because it's not a competitive event. It's a narrative event. And that's good. That's good enough for me. And I like, I want to. Like I actually have other stuff like this kind of mentally frees me up. Like, Hey, if I want to go in and get an age of Sigmar game in, Hey, maybe I can do that too. Like I've got a couple age of Sigmar armies I'm working on. I, maybe I want to work on those and that's, that's fine. That's totally fine. So yeah, we've all lost our enthusiasm for the hobby and we get it back by examining different aspects of it and sometimes just giving it time. Sometimes your enthusiasm can be completely disconnected from even playing. I mean, Kevin, I'd say you're very enthusiastic for the game and you haven't played since a couple of games at Midwest Conquest, right?
0: Right, yeah. I mean, in my case, you know, between, you know, and it's it's been years now, but, like, between moving and just, you know, being in a smaller place and, and being away from other people, like, I haven't had as many opportunities to play, but, you know, that's that's why I picked up the 3D printing hobby, because, like, that's a way I can build terrain and, and do cool customizations and stuff like that. Um, you know, running events, you know, helping coordinate with Midwest Conquest, like, that that does help, like, that helps keep me involved, uh, being on the podcast, you know, just getting a chance to talk about this stuff has kept me involved and kept me, like, my enthusiasm up, even though, yeah, I haven't had a chance to get settled in and, and start playing games, but, you know, I'm gonna get some games at the end of the month, so hopefully that'll, you know, give me get me you know back into kind of that regular swing of like actually getting to play games on a regular basis, but you know, just finding, finding aspects of the hobby to keep yourself involved, whether that's, you know, reading black library novels, uh, painting, building models, building display, you know, display cases or something like that, or, or, you know, challenging yourself to paint a model a certain way. Like there's a lot of ways to keep involved with this. And that's why I love this hobby because it is multifaceted. If you get bored of one aspect and don't want to play 40k, okay. Build a Black Legion kill team and play some play some kill team games and see if that works for you. You know, just work on building that army and, you know, maybe the 10th edition is going to it will scratch that itch for you. So, there's plenty of things to do if you're not feeling one aspect of the hobby right now. Well, so hopefully Ben, I hope that kind of Shows you where
1: we are and how we deal with like that loss of enthusiasm. Hopefully it gives you some ideas on, on how to recapture it or maybe even like, maybe you just let it recapture itself, you know, find itself over time. Uh, but you know, thank you for writing in. And if you have a question, whether it's about rules or the setting or, um, like hobby tools, uh, ways to rebalance the game, uh, rules, questions, etc. Th- uh, there are three good ways to get your letters to us. First off is email. You, are, you can email us at com. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferredenemies.com or names one word, at preferredenemies.com. Uh, second is Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash preferredenemies. You can like us there, follow us, and uh, see our updates on like when new episodes are coming out and our reactions to like previews and things like that third is twitter we are twitter.com slash preferred enemy singular and we take questions and comments from all those sources collate them together and get through as many as we can in one episode uh we actually have a couple of left over because we are trying to work through on time so we will have if you didn't get your letter read on this episode it will be on the next one but we're the door is open for getting more in so please let those letters keep coming in Uh, Also, if you want to help support the show, we have a Patreon. Uh, Now, first off, if you have the funds to support uh, a Patreon, especially with uh, the current economic situation and things like that in the world, uh, you know, we'd much rather use your Wargaming powers for awesome and help out your local community. But... If after that you still want to help support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash preferred enemies. It's an online tip jar. Basically, we don't lock any of our episodes behind a paywall. So even if you just want to throw in a dollar a month, enough people throw in a dollar, it adds up and it helps out because it supports our recording service, our web hosting, replacing microphones and offsetting travel costs, especially with uh, Kevin and Dennis coming up here back to Kansas City at the end of the month for uh, the Warhammer US Open. Uh, so th- things like that really help support the show. You've managed to help keep us at least as far as like our regular operations completely, you know, income neutral. And we really appreciate that. So if you want to help out, you know, again, patreon.com slash preferred enemies. Ah, So we're going to go ahead and take a break for sponsor identification, and when we come back, we're going to talk about our main topic, which is a look at Crusade play for Warhammer 40k. See you in a bit.
3: Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we
2: love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system.
0: They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard sized miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models.
3: KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in
2: easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of
1: Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even
0: choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays
3: for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs.
2: You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase.
1: Soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table
0: and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the Battle Mats from GameMat. Their professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a
2: variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain.
3: Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered
2: with their folding board portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain.
0: If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve.
1: And we're back. That means it's time for our main topic, which is a look at Crusade play for uh, Warhammer 40k. Uh, now, in the past, Games Workshop has tried doing uh, narrative play support uh, in, in previous versions, and usually through the the path of having like campaign books and they still do have campaign books, but that was always a matter of like, okay, you're going to take your, you're going to take 40 K you're going to play it just like you play a competitive event. And then based on if few, you know, it's usually something like a tree campaign or like, Oh, if you have like each win gets you so many points and whoever's got the, the most points, that's how the story is going to go. Stuff like that. And that has, you know, that's always kind of been there, but it was ninth edition That introduced something that was a bit different, and it's along the lines of some of the stuff we saw with uh, Age of Sigmar when they started introducing, like, the Path to Glory system. And I think they also had the Path to Glory system as, like, a downloadable, like, an ebook thing in, like, older edition, like, 6th, 7th edition. I seem to remember them having those, especially geared towards chaos units on, Mm -hmm. like, I remember seeing those in, like, the Apple bookstore type thing. But Crusade was something that was kind of new to 40k, and it's an interesting way to handle a narrative play, because it isn't necessarily about playing a narrative campaign by itself, although there are specific narrative campaigns layered on top of it, as we'll talk about. But at its heart, Crusade play is about the army that you're building, and it's it's a different way of looking at army building. It's a different way of approaching how some of the things that we kind of take for for granted about how the game works work. Basically, like most times, you go into like a a standard game, like a pickup game, for example. You go in, you're like, okay, we're gonna play like a two thousand point game, and then. You will figure out, like, you'll build your army like you would for, like, any competitive event and go from there. Crusade doesn't work that way. Um, First of all, like, Crusade leans very heavily into power level, uh, which I think is great because for people who are wanting to play a more casual narrative game, the fiddly bits of points don't really matter as much and does give you a little bit more freedom to build the things you want to build. Also, by using power level, it gives you this really basic gauge to determine how strong two armies are against each other. Because one thing is you're building your force from a a list of units that you've put together called an order of battle. And your order of battle is limited in size to something called supply limit. And this is one of my few complaints about Crusade. I'm going to get this one out of the way right away there is no small book version of these rules Mm -hmm. like we get the core rule book reprinted in like like all the generals handbooks like all the the seasonal player packs have had that all the crusade mission packs have the core rules reprinted in them which is fantastic i am not complaining about that But I would like to have those rules, also the rules that are specific for Crusade also reprinted in these little guides, and they are not. They are only available, like the core functionality of how Crusade works is only available in the core rulebook. And that is a, I think, an unnecessary misstep.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. But you get past
1: the core rules, you get past the match play session, which we, the mass match play rules, which we're going to completely ignore. We are not talking match play. Which also means we're not talking about like the Nephilim rules where they've like changed up how CP are generated. Like That doesn't matter in, their, in Crusade play because we're not playing under Nephilim rules. You could if you wanted to, but by default that is not how Crusade is played. Okay, so in Crusade you have a supply limit. And that supply limit starts at a certain amount of power. And in the book, in the Crusade rules, it recommends starting at 50 power level. Which means the units that you have, if you take all their power level and add them together, that power level cannot exceed 50. Now, that is something that can be changed in particular Crusade environments. For example, I am currently playing in a Crusade League where we started at 25 for a supply limit. And the goal for that was for newer players who wanted to get in, they could start with basically a combat patrol box. As we've talked about, those all come in at around 24, 25 power level. It's a perfect starting point for someone who's just getting into the game by s- allowing someone to start crusade play at 25 PL. That gives them a point to jump in. However, just because you have 50 PL unit of units available, does not necessarily mean you'll be playing a 50PL game. Often it does, but you might start off playing a 25PL game, which means you have to pick and choose units out of that supply, you know, out of your order of battle to fit into a 25PL battle list. And that is something that is, like, we see something like that with the narrative event coming up at the Warhammer US Open, where I believe we have a supply limit of 100 Yep. Yeah, but our starting games are at 50, which means we don't have to play this like the first three games I think are played at 50PL, you don't have to use the same 50PL worth of units in each of those games, you can mix and match out of your larger pool of 100 which is an interesting bit of army building challenge and I think it's one of the reasons why you get rid of points because it's so much easier to slot together a an army out of blocks of like Five, six, eight, 10, however much power than try mm. to like figure out like, okay, how to make the points for this work <laughs> at a, like a, Oh, we're playing a thousand point game now and I've got 2000 points of units, but I don't have any one list that adds up th- without going over a thousand or something like that. Where unless I, that would be a bookkeeping nightmare <laughs> at any time during your crusade play. Well, not in the middle of a game. That would be a bad idea. But, like, between games, you can just remove a unit from your order of battle and put in something else as long as you've got supply limit left. So, like, hey, this unit isn't working for me at all. I'm just going to get rid of it and put that PL into, like, another unit entirely. You can do that, too. But there are also some rules on, like, what you pick. It's not just a complete free-for-all. Although, as always, there are some uh, some exceptions. So, when you build your list, you pick a top-level faction for Crusade play. Uh, So, it's going to be Imperium, Chaos, Eldari, Tyranids, Orcs, Necrons, Tau Empire, and I believe with Leagues of Votan, Leagues of Votan are officially considered a top-level Crusade faction, separate from that.
2: Yes, the keyword Votan has been included in that list now.
1: Yes. Yes. And they say, in a Crusade Force, all the units in your order of battle have to share at least one of those keywords. And unlike match play where they would say, like, yeah, Imperium's not good enough for, like, a detachment or anything like that. Like, you can have, like, so if you want to do a mixed Imperium list or a mixed Chaos list, you can have them all in your order of battle. Now, when you actually go into a game, you will want to be able to fit them into a Battle forged layout with detachments. So be aware of that when you're building your your order of battle. But you've got a lot of freedom to go places with this and just build whatever you want. However, there's extra bookkeeping that goes on because of this. So one thing they mention is every unit in your order of battle has to have a crusade card. And a crusade card is basically a fancy term for a sheet that describes... Like that keeps track of the unit and whatever like experience it's gained and what abilities it's gained through things that have happened in-game. Because guess what? We're playing 40K as a role-playing game at this point.
2: I'll toss in a nice thing here. GW's site, or at least the Warhammer Community site, you can download empty Crusade cards and whatnot, so you can just print them out to fill out and use.
1: Yeah, that's true. They also sell a Crusade journal, which is a nice little leatherette booklet that has a whole bunch of orders of battle and crusade cards my one problem with the book it's a kind of a glaring issue just because it's a weird layout every page is an order of battle on one side and a crusade card on the other (laughs) which it's like i would have liked to have like an order of battle and then a batch of Crusade cards and then another Order of Battle. I mean, it, it is so that you can run multiple Crusades out of one journal, and that's nice. And it's, you know, like I said, a little leatherette booklet. It's got, the, it's got two bookmarks sewn into it. Really nice. I like it. I'm going to be transferring all my stuff to this. But I do like, yeah, that they do make those available for a free download to print out. Or um, there's people who have come up with, like, online automated versions using, like, Google Sheets that you can, like, copy to your Google Drive and keep track of stuff there. And on top of your order of battle, not only are you keeping track of your supply limit and how much supply you've used, but you're also keeping track of something called requisition points. Uh, Requisition points are what you use to buy upgrades for your army. So, for example, you start, if you were going... Like stock crusade out of the the core book, you're starting at 50 power level and you start with five requisition points. In fact, you can never have more than five because they do want you to spend them. Requisition points give you a means to upgrade your army. So for example, if you want to give a character a warlord trait or have a relic, you can do that through requisition points. And they work differently than they do in, like, a matched play. And this is one of the – this is the one spot where Games Workshop has not released any FAQs or designer commentary or anything about Crusade. And I do think that's a little bit of a problem because there are some things that aren't necessarily as clear as they might be. So, for example – uh, Relics, Warlord Traits, and Upgrades. I'm going to read here right from the core book. This is on page 314 of the core book in the Crusade section. No model in your order of battle can have a relic or a warlord trait unless you have purchased the appropriate requisition. This means that your warlord does not automatically have a warlord trait, and you do not automatically get to give a relic to one character in your army. There are also several stratagems in codexes and other publications that can upgrade units before the battle. Examples include stratagems that enable additional models to have relics or warlord traits or stratagems that grant units better characteristics or abilities. You cannot use any of these stratagems to upgrade any unit in your order of battle unless you have purchased the appropriate requisition as described below. Um, So that would imply that if you want to have two models in your army With warlord traits, not only do you have to spend the requisition to get both of them warlord traits, you would then also have to spend the stratagem to give one of them an extra warlord trait, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me because the requisition points are to equip that relic or warlord trait onto the unit when it's on your order of battle, and then the stratagems are what you have to use when you actually go into the game itself. So one's order-the-battle related, and one is game-related. I mean, it's it's kind of messy bookkeeping, but this is how they, I guess, has separated them out.
1: Right. I, my one issue with it is they followed up with the bullet points, which they do a lot in the ninth edition rulebook. I like the bullet points as summaries, but the last bullet point is you cannot use stratagems that upgrade your unit before the battle. Which then makes me feel like, okay, so which is it? I use the requisition points in addition, or I use them instead.
2: I, I that, interpret it as in as in addition. Mm-hmm. But and it, to me, that's just saying that you can't upgrade a unit from your order of battle into a game unless they've already been upgraded on the order of battle.
1: Right. And it also doesn't address things – when we get to the actual way requisition is spent – it doesn't address things like if you want to give a relic to like a sergeant character, because we have a number of codexes yeah. where there's, there's something like that. It does not address that because the requisition points can only be sent to give a character a relic.
2: And I think the ninth edition rule book came out before any of the extra things where sergeants could get relics could come out, and uh, yeah, that, that's one of my concerns as well. It's like Well ah, I think space, Mar-
1: space Marines had it, and they were one of the first codexes. So it's
2: there. Okay.
1: but it's still it's like that having something that would address that would be nice. They also mentioned that named characters always have a warlord trait, even if they're not your warlord. And if a publication lists what named character warlord, what a named character warlord traits must be, then it must be this. They'll have this warlord trait, even if another model in your order of battle already has that warlord trait. But having this named character in your order of battle does not prevent another model in your order of battle from having this warlord trait. But again, we're talking order of battle, not your army in a game. They're different. Um, They talk about how knight and imperial knight and chaos knight detachments work although i'd have to look at the knight codexes to see if that's been updated or if this is still how they how these work because they also mention exalted court and tyrannical court stratagems i don't remember tyrannical court stratagems being a thing anymore in the uh chaos knight yeah
2: they they got changed around Mm -hmm.
1: but for example like okay so like requisitions if you want to buy a relic Purchase this requisition when you add a Crusade card for a character unit to your Order of Battle or when a character unit in your Order of Battle gains a rank. What's ranked? We'll talk about that in a bit. You can give one character model in that unit one relic, excluding Crusade relics, Uh, This must still be a relic it can have, can't be a relic that replaces a weapon this character is equipped with if it has been upgraded with a crusade relic or an enhancement. We'll talk about that in a bit. Make a note on the relic of the unit's crusade card and add one to its crusade points total. Crusade points, that's something else we'll be talking about in a minute. So it's like, it doesn't mention that, like, okay, you can only add a relic to a character unit. So there's no requisition that allows you to upgrade like a sergeant. That's a little bit of a problem. Although there's a specialist reinforcements requisition, which allows you to target any unit. And it's like, if there is a stratagem that could upgrade this unit to give it a, either a better characteristic profile and or abilities, you can use that stratagem to upgrade that unit for free. Even if you would normally not have access to a stratagem, if you use that, then you don't have to pay command points to use that stratagem. So, It's still unclear on things with uh, relics. If you have extra relics because you have extra – because you've upgraded multiple characters with relics, do you have to pay – do those stratagems become free or do you have to pay for those because these other ones do become free? Again, it's one of these cases where I would think, you know, there needs to be an FAQ. But the most important requisitions you're going to see besides the Warlord trait and relic ones is increased supply limit. For one requisition point, and you get one requisition point per game, and you can never have more than five, you can purchase this requisition at any time, increase your crusade's force, Increase your Crusade Force's supply limit by five power. And that is how basically Crusade acts as an Escalation League, because, like, if you want, you can blow all five of your starting requisition as, like, I'm just going to jump up from, like, 50 to 75 power. And just have 75 power worth of units available to pick from. You can totally do that. The thing is, once you add a unit to your order of battle, its war gear and its unit size is fixed. You cannot change it without also spending requisition. So, for example... There's also one called Fresh Recruits. Purchase this requisition at any time. Select one unit from your order or battle, not counting characters, vehicles, or monsters, that has a Crusade card. You cannot choose a unit that has achieved a particular rank. So basically, once a unit has leveled up, again, we'll talk about that, you can add any number of models to the unit and increase their power rating, and if you selected a unit that had reached a certain rank, you have to increase their Crusade points. And uh, you increase it, or you increase its crusade points depending on it, how big its power rating went. So, for example, I have noise marines in my emperor's children. They are at six power level for five guys. If I add five more, then they jump up to twelve power level. I have to increase their crusade rank because they got that much more powerful. What do, what does crusade points have to do with anything? Well, you keep track of crusade points as units get more powerful, as they level up, as they gain relics and warlord traits and things like that to represent that these are not stock models. These have gotten better and stronger. When two players play crusade games... Because one of the ideas of Crusade is it is Crusade is not necessarily tied to a particular narrative campaign. You could take the same Crusade army from campaign to campaign to campaign because the games you're going to be playing, like I could have a Crusade army that has a supply limit of 150 PL. I can basically take anything in the codex that I want. I have a whole bunch of stuff in my list, but I still only have, let's say we're only playing a 50 PL game. I got to pick 50 PL from that list, but a lot of my stuff may be like super upgraded, and I may be playing against a player who is brand new in the Crusade League. Well, anytime you get an enhancement, you add a Crusade point or two or more, and you to your to those units. And then when you pick your army from your order of battle, you add up how many Crusade points you have on all your units. You're like, okay, I have, let's say I have. 12 crusade points because I've been playing this army for a while and I've got a lot of upgrades and I'm playing against somebody who has zero crusade points and then when two battleforged crusade armies battle each other it is likely that one or the other will be more experienced to determine this add up your crusade points if there's a difference between the two then whoever has the lower crusade points gets a number of bonus command points equal to half the difference rounding up because you want to help the underdog. And I played a game this past week where I was playing, like, I have two, cru- like, I've only been playing the league for, like, three, three weeks. I was playing against somebody who was bringing in their crusade army from, like, another, like, crusade units. And they've been also getting a lot of spare games. And so they had leveled up their units significantly to the point where they had 12. I started with five extra command points. And I burned through them. And it let me punch above my weight limit to deal with those units that had been, that had received significant upgrades. So it is a neat balancing factor, which is going to be interesting if they get rid of stratagems and command points later. Because I hope they don't, because it actually makes Crusade kind of work. But the reason you keep track of what, of like Crusade points is because one of the things you do when you're playing through each game is units get to level up. And this kind of makes it feel a little bit like the old I think they borrowed some of this from, like, not the current version, but the previous version of Kill Team, where you'd have, like, specialists who would, like, level up and gain abilities as you, like, as you played through, like, a Kill Team campaign. Basically, you play a game. You do, like, you you build your army, you play the game, and then at the end of the game, for Crusade missions, there's a process you go through for post-game, and you'll see it referred to as bookkeeping. And that's absolutely what it is. And even like in the Warhammer US Open, like Crusade Packet, they set aside time blocks for like, okay, this is your this is your game time, and then here's the the little window of time that we have set aside for your bookkeeping because this is stuff you have to keep track of. So, like I said, it's a role playing game now, instead of just a war game. So first off, you go through all the Crusade cards for units that were in that battle, and any unit that was destroyed during the battle, you have to make an out of action test. Now, I've seen some narrative formats in the past where, like, if a unit failed an out-of-action test, kind of like, I think a kill team would have this, like, if a unit failed an out-of-action test, they might die. Like, they were just gone. You'd have to replace them with some new scrub. They don't do that here, fortunately. But basically, for every unit, if it was removed from the battlefield, you roll a d6. On a 2 through 6, nothing happens. They're fine. They'll just be available next time. If you roll a 1 one of two things happens. You get to choose, but something bad will happen. One is the unit loses experience points, which you gain experience points. We'll tell you how after the, After this. You lose like D6 experience points and you can't gain any from this battle. So basically like they're wiped out to the point where, yeah, they'll bounce back, but they're not going to gain anything from this. And they might even backtrack because the unit, let's say only had like two or three experience points and you, you might wipe them all out. Or let's say, I really want this. I really need this unit to be able to get experience. Like maybe that unit was like right on the cusp of hitting the next level and unlocking new upgrades. I want them to keep going. You can instead choose to give the unit a battle scar and there's an entire set of charts you can roll on. Based on what kind of unit it is is it a character, a monster, a vehicle, or anything else and the battle scores will the battle scars will give your unit something bad it'll give it basically a debuff so for example, let's say you've got a tank that got blown up and it, during the uh out of action test, you roll a one. And you're like, well, I don't want the tank to lose experience, because it's almost to the next XP level. I'll roll a Battle Scar for it. You roll up, and uh, you roll... Oh, let's say you roll a four. Weapon damage. Select one weapon equipped by a vehicle model in this unit. Subtract one from hit and wound rolls when resolving attacks of that weapon. That's just a thing that unit has for the rest of the time you play that Crusade Army. (laughs) It's just... It's weapons are going to suck a little bit. Fortunately, there's a requisition that you can spend called repair and recuperate, which lets you remove a battle, one battle scar from a unit. Then like once you've gone through, like you've gone through all these out of unit tests and you figured out like hopefully everybody makes it through, but not everybody will. Then you update experience. So you go through all those crusade cards again. Each unit that was part of your army gets an experience point. Then you select one unit in your army and you consider them marked for greatness. Marked for greatness just means they gain three experience points. And then a unit gains one experience points under, this is a rule called dealers of death. A unit gains one experience point for every third enemy unit it has destroyed in total. That's total from when you first put them into your order of battle. So you actually do keep track on their crusade card of how many units they've destroyed like what you know if they took the last model off of a squad they mark that they tally that up and every 3 like once you've hit a third one you get an ex- you get an experience point and then finally if any units succeeded at agendas we'll talk about that in a moment then they can might get one or more experience points you tally that up and once a unit hits a certain number of experience points that unit actually levels up and hits another rank. So zero to five experience points, you are battle ready. That is, you are are just like it says in the codex, you're a stock unit ready to go. Once you hit six, you become blooded. From six to 15, you're blooded. 16 to 30, you're battle hardened. 31 to 50, you're heroic, 51 plus legendary. It's going to take a while to get to, you know, to get those higher ranks. But once you go up a rank, you get access to battle honors. Battle honors could be battle traits, which are the opposite of battle scars. They are give you buffs instead of debuffs. Uh, weapon enhancements, which will make one of your weapons, whether range, there's a different chart for ranged or melee. Um, psychic Fortitude. If you've got a Psyker unit, you can give them maybe an extra psychic power that they know, or an extra unit they might be able to cast or deny. Uh, you can give them a crusade relic, which is not to be mistaken for regular relics, which is why the relic strat, or, like, the relic requisition doesn't let you pick one of these. And the crusade relics are the ones that you will see in, like, there's a list of generic ones, and then there's also the, like, the codex-specific crusade relics will fall under this section as well. And then, they like, there are different tiers of relics so for example an artificer relic can level relic can go to any character a heroic character somebody who's gotten at least 31 experience can take an antiquity relic and if you've hit 51 experience or more that character can take a legendary relic like there's stuff that you can't get until you have really maxed out a character and so you keep track and then every time you get a battle honor. Those battle honors will give you one or more crusade points, and so that's that why the, that's that gauge of how powerful a unit has become. Named characters are kind of interesting in all this though. Named characters, because they always have they, most of them have relics worked into their character design, because they always have their fixed warlord trait, no matter what. And because they are who they are locked into the story, they never gain experience. But on the flip side, they also never fail an out of action test because they don't they will never get a battle scar. They'll never lose experience because they can never gain experience. They can't gain relics because they can't be given relics in the game. So they're just named characters are just kind of there. They don't cost anything extra to take. You can always take a named character. It's just that that named character will never be more than what they are on the table. So, for example, in the league I'm playing in right now, I am playing Lucius as like my warlord. I'm always taking Lucius. It's his warband. Lucius the Eternal is never going to get any better than what he already is. He will never get a special ability, he will never get a relic. He's just him, the dude Lucius. And but it also means he'll never a- like he'll never go up in crusade points. He'll never outbalance for me. Because he's never gonna get any stronger, so just be aware of that, like if you have a named character who already exists who you particularly like, you never have to worry about about that with uh you know experience. It's just you also will never gain anything for them,
2: right, so it sounds like the the named characters at the start will kind of be really powerful, but if you go on long enough, you're built up HQs will have a lot more perks and be a little stronger than these named characters.
1: Right. It's basically you're making a name. You by the end, you're making your own named character. Like you've, you've developed this leader, this hero to be able to stand with like the, the legends of 40 K lore. Now there are like, besides named characters, there are also other units that will never gain experience, but they also never fail out of action tests. Swarms, so like Ripper swarms, swar uh Canoptic scarabs, they're never going to gain experience because they're just like a little horde of little little beasties. Drones are the same way. So like your Tau drones, like you have a unit of drones, they're never going to level up, but they're also never going to get a battle scar. So they're just kind of there. Units with the fortification battlefield role, yeah, that building's never going to get heroic. Sorry, that's not going to uh, happen.
2: What if I put a flag <laughs> on it?
1: N- I mean, nope, nope. have you heard of the Wall of Martyrs? Come on. Well, yeah, but it is it is just a wall. And as we all know from Magic lore, walls can't attack. <laughs>
2: Unless you have the right commander.
1: And then summoned units, any units that are added to your army during the battle, can never gain experience. Um, which, there aren't that many books that have that anymore. I think that's mostly gone away. But they do have rules for them because when this core rulebook dropped, there were armies that could still do, like, demon summoning and things like that. But yeah, like, that's all recorded on your Crusade card. The experience they have, the combat tallies, whatever honors they've gotten, what rank they currently are, whatever battle scars they have, you keep track of that from battle to battle to battle. And so you end up building this force that is kind of, you know, has a story built in it and gets more and more elite as it goes on. And, uh... It's like, it's an interesting way to handle it. And then I mentioned agendas, agendas take the place of secondary missions because like all the crusade missions, they have like their scoring built into it. You don't pick like secondary, like the way you would in, in matched play instead, based on game size, you choose between one to four agendas. So like at 25 PL, you pick an agenda at 50 PL, two agendas, Uh, 100 PL, three agendas. And and then they support up to Onslaught, which is 150 PL, which is four. But the agendas are basically, uh, they are set up a lot like the secondaries, so that they are in particular categories and you can't double up on a category. So, for example, the very first one in the book, assassins purge the purge the enemy category assassins keep an assassin tally for each unit in your army add one to its tally each time it destroys an enemy character each unit gains two experience points for every mark on its assassins tally tally so if you're and you do that after you determine like who you're facing like you know what you, what list your opponent has mustered if they have a bunch of characters you can take the assassin's agenda and any of your units that kills a uh kills a character is going to get two Experience per character they killed. Maybe you want. Maybe you have a fast-moving army. You go with battlefield supremacy breakthrough. At the end of the battle, select up to three units from your army, except aircraft that are wholly within six inches of your opponent's battlefield edge. Each of those units earns two experience points. Um, There's also codex-specific ones. Emperor's Children. I'm going to keep referring to Emperor's Children because I've been playing them a lot lately. Uh, They have one called flawless execution where. If you take a unit from starting strength to destroyed in one shooting phase, you get a tally point. If you did a fight phase without losing, like if you killed enemy models, but didn't take any wounds yourself, you get a, you get a tally mark. And at the end of the game, if the unit never fell back and never failed a morale check, you get a tally point. And then for every unit that is at half strength or better, they get an experience for each tally mark they get up to a max of four. So it's like, that's a faction specific one reflecting that even sub-faction specific reflecting the fact that um, they are, you know, trying to be as flawless as possible. There will also be uh, agendas that will tie into the special rules that each codex has. Now we've talked about a lot of these sometimes in passing, like the Tau taking over a sector through military and, you know, military and diplomatic means, or there's the Tyranid one where you go through the three different stages of devouring a planet's biomass, the Gene stealer cult's uh, plans of taking over a, a planet by like infiltrating different aspects of the, uh, of the society. Um, Chaos Space Marines have one where like you're keeping track of, your personal glory, your influence with the the chaos gods and how powerful your war fleet is. And you have to constantly keep these three things kind of in balance. Um, if one of them falls too low, you start like having penalties accrued against you. But if you can get them up, to a certain point, then you get access to free stratagems depending on which tracks are leveled up. There's a, that that's a lot of extra bookkeeping and that happens more at the order of battle level rather than at the unit level. But that's also where things like the Eldari, like if you want to have the avatar of Kane, you can't start with it in your army. You can't start with it in your battle order. You have to get an exarch who has leveled up and then – like, who has Exarch powers and then sacrifice them to gain – like, you have to lose those upgrades to gain the access (laughs) access to the Avatar of Cain. Which means, like, if I took – I was thinking about taking Eldari to the U.S. Open, but, like, a lot of my power level would be tied up in the Avatar and I can't start with him in my list. Right,
2: but as I I, kind of spelled out, because I was also thinking the same thing at first, is I want to do Eldari – by the third game, um, if you spent all your, you're, you're the great unit. You get the three extra experience points. You would have enough when it bumps up from fifty to hundred to add the avatar to your order of battle. Um, but that also means then those units will be s- not as experienced going into the last three games. But
1: there's <clears throat> still a way. Yeah, there, you're still it's still a way, but you can't like say like, like it's not like a match play game where you can just like. I'm, I want to use the avatar, so I'm just using oh, the avatar for e- this 50PL yeah. game. No, you've got to work up to it.
2: Yeah, you have to have a story of why, why did you need to summon the avatar?
1: <laughs> right. In, uh, Crusade play for Chaos Space Marines, unless you're playing Emperor's Children because they have to have everything marked with Slaanesh, you can't start with anything marked for Chaos. It's a requisition you have to buy. So, a lot of the, the upgrades, uh, the character upgrades that uh, you see for, like, a Chapter Master, you don't start with those. You have to buy buy up on them. Like, you have to yeah. level up. Which, I mean, that it makes was, sense.
2: It's cool. It's a slight disappointment when you're d- used to just building lists, like going mm-hmm. back to the Eldari. I love taking the Banshee one where I do multiple wounds. I love taking the Direvenger Avenger one to make my squad objective secured those you can't take because those are actual upgrades so you have to level them up till they rank up and then you're like oh hey now you can take this which would be like a 15 20 point upgrade which still is if you have to do points for some weird reason but it it adds one power level to you and you have to spend the requisition to it once you finally get experienced enough to unlock those
1: right yeah, and that's the thing. It's like, they even say, like, you can't take this if you don't have the supply limit left. Like, if you're at, if you're maxed out at like your 50 PL or your 50 PL of supply or whatever, you're like, okay, I'm going to upgrade this XR. No, you're not. Not until you at spend one requisition point to add five, five supplies. So you I have am the room very to thankful
2: it. it's one requisition point for five because at first yeah. I was scared it would be one for one. I'm like, ugh. But no, one for five is very reasonable. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I will say for Emperor's Children, because I have to mark everything, and because marking everything does increase its power level, my my army is technically smaller than it would be if I wasn't playing Emperor's Children, because I would probably have, like... Because I'm, I'm running, like, six, seven units. I'd have another unit's worth of power level I could take. But because everything yeah. has to be upgraded, except for the... Well, the Noise Marines already have it worked in, but everything else, I, I have to spend the, the power on it, so...
0: Yeah, I ran into that with uh, building my World leaders Army for KC Open because I was like, oh, well, if I do this, I can take Karn. Oh, wait, no, I can't because I, c- I have to take Karn in this one because if I take a Lord, I have to mark him and that puts me over the PL. So, yeah, mm-hmm. fun, fun balancing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like there's some interesting army building things. And again, it's like this is this is one that's all done for flavor. And I get it. And I think it's cool. It's just something that you – it's one of those, like, you have to kind of unlearn what you know about building armies for match play or at least building your order of battle. Like, you you can't look at your order of battle the same way you would look at – like, I'm just going to build an army list. It's not the same exactly. And that's also, like, being able to swap units out. Now, one thing they do mention is, you know, if you have a unit, it's like, well, I want to fit in this other thing, but I'm going to have to drop a unit out of my order of battle to fit it in. You can do that, but the minute you take a unit out of your order of battle, you can never get it back with the same upgrades. I mean, you can take those upgrades, but it's gone. If you take that unit, that kind of unit again, it starts out completely fresh, which will drop your crusade points and everything. But you don't get any requisition points that you spent on like – like if you drop a character, you don't get the points back for like buying them a warlord trait or a relic. It's, that's just gone. So it encourages you to not swap out everything all the time. But that's also why, like, in the packet for the U.S. Open Crusade Plate, like, take bring more than 100 PL worth of models because you should be encouraged to swap things out of your order of battle. Like, that, that's always an option
2: you should have. Traveling eight hours, I'm just bringing what's going to be – what's going to be on there because I am buying – I'm planning out to buy some secured or some – supply requisitions to increase my supply limit
1: yeah for an event like this where people are traveling to it it's not as viable to just bring your whole collection and it's more viable at smaller point levels to do that oh yes totally at a a larger one but i do like that they've built that into crusade play
2: yeah and i i will admit what i've tried like when i was thinking of doing like an all Votan list if if their models were going to be out in time, which it doesn't look like they are. Cry. Or all Eldari, I was going to have, like, kind of build my 100 PL list and then break it up into 250 units and then have one game be the first 50 so those units could get experience and the next game be the other 50 so those units could get experience and then roll that together into my 100
1: yeah, because then then you've got you know you kind of get a nice well rounded list. Whereas I'm going with a very different tact for mine, in that I have a 50 PL list that is I'm going to be using in every game. And then once we get to the 100 PL, the other 50 PL of my supply limit is one model, and it's the Townar. Like I and I'm playing a dangerous game doing that because I could end up like units get wiped out. I could end up losing their experience or and causing them to gain a battle scar and because i'm like only going to gain one requisition per game like if two units get battle scars somebody's gonna have a battle scar going into the next battle because i'll probably have used up my requisition although i don't think we have to spend requisition because we already have the 100 pl like you don't really have to spend much in the way of requisition on like increasing your your level i don't think Mm. for this event
2: well, I know on Eldar I was going to have to because I wanted to get up to like 110 I, t- so I could have all the models because I didn't want to pull things out of the list. So that gave me the way to get the upgrades I wanted. Um But uh, yeah, for because I'm going to do something very similar to you where I'm going to take Sisters as my Imperium list and I've got 50PL set aside for that. And then I've got 50 PL of Agents of the Imperium that will tack on for the final three games when we up it to 100 power level. So, yeah, it's going to be like the sisters are getting experience and then all these other Imperium things come in that are questionably Imperium. But I'm calling them Imperium because the book says I can't.
1: And like for this particular event, yeah, five games, players should develop an order of battle from which armies can be built We'll here to battle forge rules as established in Warhammer 40,000 core rulebook. We'll supply limit for this event will be 100. It doesn't say you can't buy more, I don't think. Right. They also want people bringing in uh, fresh armies, you know, so you can't bring in anything that have accrued battle honors, battle scars, enhancements, psychic fortitudes, or any other trait or benefit through crusade events. So everybody's kind of coming in fresh, which is good. Then on top – like, this is an event where they've got the extra fame and infamy system on top of the Crusade system. And I do think that is one of the cool things about Crusade is that it does provide a nice uh, framework that you can build other campaign stuff onto, which they do in, like, their various mission packs. So, for example, there's Wars of Faith, which is the most recent one, and I think the one that will be in play for this event, where – I don't
2: think it – I mean, it it is, but it is – it's not required.
1: It's not required, but it will be – what I'm saying is it's available if you want to use Use it. it. And so, like, that has this whole thing with keeping track of, like, the, like, different armies can subscribe to different causes, and then they can level up those, ca- like, their support and their faith in those causes, which can unlock other, other benefits, things like that. So there's, there's systems that you can layer on top of Crusade. In you know, and kind of in the same way that like match play, like we have Nephilim where we changed up how command points work, and we changed up the whole free warlord trait and free relic thing, which actually ironically makes it more like Crusade play. But uh it yeah, it is interesting that you can have these other systems uh layered on top of that. Now I will say there is one thing that was kind of promised at the when the Crusade was first announced when Ninth Edition dropped, and it was kind you know kind of played up a little bit, and I don't think I've ever actually seen it come to fruition. And that's the idea of well, you can always take your Crusade army and play it against any you know play it against a uh, non-Crusade army in a pickup game and use that to gain you know like experience for your for your army and such. Yes, technically. <laughs> Sure, you could, but because match play and pickup games, things like that, don't work off of power level, but instead work off of points, and be, like you'd have to basically agree to play without all the upgrades and things that were Crusade-specific, I don't know how much that often, that actually well, happens.
2: And also, agendas versus secondaries, you kind right. of then have to be playing to both, because... You're scoring in a match play or even a, a kind of friendly game has you going for primaries and secondaries. And even in the rule book, the missions for crusade and um, match are totally different. So it, it's, if you're playing the matched ones, you'll have the secondaries. You can, I guess, attach your agendas on them, but then you're just having more that you have to try to do, have to f- remember. And it just, I don't know. I, it, I don't think it really works.
1: Nah, I I think while the intention was kind of like, hey, we can have this cross pollination between like narrative casual players and like, you know, competitive and pickup games. Yeah, in practice, I don't think I think it's two exclusive ways of playing with the same rule set. And I think that's fine. I think that having having both systems available is good. Um It's definitely something that I hope they keep, you know, whatever the new edition looks like. Um, I, I do think Crusade is a success. The fact that um, we've had like like a half dozen different Crusade supplements put out, not that's on top of like any of the campaign books. There's usually a Crusade supplement that goes hand in hand with a campaign book. And the fact that we're having Crusade format events being pushed at you know, not just at Warhammer World, but at these the U.S. Open events as a narrative thing. And because it is actually a system that you can set up like this where it's like, yeah, you go in fresh. Everybody's starting at the same point, but like your armies are going to go in different directions as the games go on. I think is actually really cool. And I'm glad to see. I think they finally hit on a style of narrative play that. I think is more accessible to everyone because it's not necessarily tied to a particular campaign, doesn't even really require you to have a campaign at all. You can have one. You can play this with a campaign. You can play a campaign without using Crusade. But like, if you just want to say, I'm, let's just do have a crusade league and see what kind of games come up. Like the league I'm in right now. If you have, like, if you're playing against somebody and you're both, like, let's say you're both at 100 PL, go ahead and have. Uh, uh-huh, hunt, you know, go ahead and play that bigger game if you want. Not everybody has to be on the same page cuz all that matters for like the league scoring is like everything's d- divided basically between Imperium and Chaos and it's like we just need to know like one game, one of your games per week, like the first game you play per week, did you win or lose and that's going to go to that faction's tally. And then after that, every other game you play is just so you f- if you want to grind out experience. But again, because the crusade point system that doesn't necessarily put the players who don't spend a lot of time grinding out XP at a disadvantage because they get come into the game with a ton of command points and can use all their stratagems. So. so
2: So Robin, that thing is it just Imperium or Chaos? No Xenos?
1: Uh, uh no, there are Xenos players. <laughs> they they basically got assigned to different teams based on you know, just to kind of keep things even. Like most of the players are Imperium or Chaos, but like I know there's there's a Tyranid player, a Tau player, I believe there's an Eldari player, and I'm not sure, like, how they've divvied them up, I, but they're, like, s- set on to, like, it, it's kind of more based off of, like, are they trying to protect the planet or are they trying to disrupt the planet type thing?
2: Yeah, that's that's the only problem I have with Xenos and any narrative things. If you Like, you know, if you're doing your own narrative, which Crusade allows, it makes perfect sense you're doing your own thing, but then adding a big narrative story... Well, you either have the factions that are in the story. Well, then you know which ones they are. Or if it's like this, the easiest way is to divvy it up between Imperium and, and Chaos because those are two natural enemies. But mm-hmm. then the Xenos are kind of just like out there, like, well, we don't really like either Imperium or Chaos, so where do we?
1: Like, <laughs> I I could see you doing. I could see something like if you did like an invaders defenders type thing. Yeah, because like you could have Drukari on the side of invaders. You yes, know, anytime eldari like Asuriani could fall either side whether they're wanting to mess the you know cause cause disruptions or whether they're like maybe the invaders are chaos. So they're going to be on the defend, you know, defender's side. Yeah. It's like, I I could always be
2: anti chaos.
1: (laughs) Right. So it's, it's, so like there's, there's freedom to do that. And like, you could also do like a, like if you wanted to do an Imperium chaos, Xenos thing, depending on how many players and like there's, there's ways, but again, that's all layered on top of crusade. And I do like that, that it's the crusade is all just about your army doing your army's thing. And I would say that some of the uh, some of the army specific crusade rules are more successful than others, and are definitely more involved than others. Because like you, like Adeptus Sororitas have the whole thing like pick one of your characters, and your oh, whole gosh. thing is built around making them into a living saint. Like you're all you're doing is just building up and trying to accumulate saint points for this character
2: and you have to go down each of the tracks and some of those mm. tracks are insanely hard to you have to manufacture ways to make them happen i guess so then you're just you're you're really focused on my entire crusade army is built around trying to do what i can to buff this one character
1: right whereas like the death guard one is yeah you're just going to make up a disease roll on this chart look uh, you've got a disease yay do the thing And it's, like, you could tell it was very early on in coming up with Crusade rules, because there's not a lot involved with it.
2: I will admit, I don't have a Crusade group down here. I might look for one or maybe try to start one. I don't know if I'll be successful with that. But Votan, I really like their Crusade rules, because they're out prospecting worlds to try and get resources from. So that's your extra step, is at the end of each match, what resources did you get And then you use those resources to buy upgrades for the army. And so I I really like that system in place. I don't think it fits for other factions, but definitely fits for Votan. And it's a style that I like.
1: Yeah, there are some of them. Like, I really like the idea of the Tau one, where you're trying to take over a sector of planets. And then when you once you finish, you just move on to another sector and start that process over. But then there's some of them, like the Tyranids one where because it's mimicking, like, the three different stages of, like, initial infiltration and invasion, then the actual fight to, like, take over the planet, and then the consumption phase, it actually changes what units you're supposed to take in your order of battle. Because, like, you're not going to have lictors running around scouting ahead and gene stealers and stuff when you're at the consumption phase. Because the consumption phase is when you're going to have stuff like hair specs and things eating all the things. And so it's like... That one's a lot harder to manage, I would think. (laughs) So not all of those those codec specific ones are created equal. Some I think are some are way more involved. Like I know the like the Chaos Knights one has like following you through like the eight layers of chaos corruption. Like it's crazy.
2: I think that's pretty cool though. I I like the Chaos Knights one more than the Imperial Knights one.
1: Yeah. It's cool. But it's a lot, <laughs> you know, it's there's a some of these have a lot to keep track of.
2: Oh, oh yeah. And I can the Chaos Knights kind of like the sisters um, and the fact that you're just you're more focused on the one guy who's going down the spiral.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: But at the same time, nights, you'll have like five to eight things or maybe 10 things on the board. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot easier to try and make happen than when you have like 50 or 60 models and you're just trying to buff up one.
1: Right. Whereas, like, like the, the Chaos Space Marine one, they like here's this track, and they actually have like the, the last page of the codex is yeah, copy and print this out so that you can actually keep track. Of, like, have something to keep track of where you are. Like right now, I'm just like writing numbers on the back of a, a sheet of paper, but it's like you know it's getting complex when they have to, when you have accessories that you have to copy out of the book to keep track of everything. But, yeah, I remember this the Votan one having like all the little like blocks on the page for keeping track of like the different kinds of resources and what you could upgrade with getting the right resource counts. Uh, So some of these are probably going to need to be re-examined when they when those codexes get another look or whenever the next version of whatever Crusade is comes out. I don't want them to change up too much of Crusade. I just think there's a few things that need to be tightened up a little bit like clarified on how it, it how it interacts with those like codex stratagems because again when this was dropped there wasn't a lot in the way of like the strat- stratagems for taking ex- you know, like we had them for taking extra relics and extra um extra warlord traits but now it's like something you see in every single book and it's like it would be good to know to make sure like those still interact properly with the army mustering I am assuming they do, but it's like once a character like takes a relic or takes a warlord trait, that's just always on their character sheet. Like it's always active. And so it's just unclear. Like, do I have to spend the stratagem to use that character now? (laughs) There's little interactions like that. This is also where having somebody who's basically like, if you're doing a crusade league, having a, a crusade master, like a game master to make those kinds of rulings is useful. Because like if I'm going to take multiple characters with warlord traits, I probably should spend the CP to do it. Even though those characters, by the virtue of having relics and warlord traits, will be worth more crusade points, which will give my opponent more CP. So Yeah, I mean, it's I'm, something that they I'm probably just sure. need
2: to clarify, which goes back to you saying that they need to clarify things.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's just like I would love to see Crusade reexamined, and especially if they were going to, you know, like I like I would like reprint the Crusade cor- rules from the core book into the various Crusades mission packs, like they do with every with the core rules. Have you know that's because all those updated versions of the core rules have like whatever rare rule interaction pages that they've added in the Errata, like so they're more up to date as they go. Having the same thing for Crusade would be really nice. All right, so I guess this is the 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 question of going into the U.S. Open, where we've got kind of this, you know, fresh start, but also kind of a fixed crusade structure going on. Kevin, Dennis, and I—we are all going into this. What are we playing, and why? I know my mine's already been spoiled a bit. I'm playing Tao with a Town R, <laughs> but. Uh, and I'm playing it because I have a townar and I want to use it. And Kevin said I should use it, and I agreed with him that he that I, that I should absolutely use it. And it happens to be 50 PL
0: exactly, so
1: it was meant to be.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, part of that was uh, when I was when I was home for uh, Gen Con and some other stuff in uh, in August. I was like I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to do. So how can I build a list in the easiest and most simplest way possible? And I was like, well, the towner is 50 points. I have a towner. Maybe I should build around that. I also then realized that I don't have 50 PL of tau available for like support. So but, you know, I was able to I was glad I was able to seed the idea for somebody to do it. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm running is I'm I'm running World Eaters. It's an army I already had built. I have it painted. I It is it is an absolutely non-competitive army, so I'm going to get rolled in every game, but I'm going to have fun with it. Uh, and I figured it'd kind of be a nice uh, last run with them before hopefully we get a boatload of new models and rules and the army actually becomes good. So uh, I basically built a 100PL list with a bunch of berserkers, and I'm, I basically kept it as simple as possible. Like, uh, it's, you know, uh, an Exalted Champion, Karn, four units of Berserkers, two units of cultists, a Mauler Fiend that I had converted from my KDK list, uh, the Chitin, and, like, some Custom Chosen that I have. Um, I wanted to fit in a unit of terminator so I could do the Red Butcher's thing, but I realized that every single uh, World Eaters Terminator that I have built right now is double lightning claws because that used to be a thing you could do. And I didn't want to go through the process of basically, I, I don't have time with everything else going on to build or paint anything. So I was trying to work through what I have like already built. So I'm not unfortunately going to do the terminators for this one, but I did get the, uh, the, the, the Warhammer plus year two, awesome World Eater Terminator that I'm going to paint up at some point, but I don't need to paint him up for this because I won't have any other Terminators I can use. So,
2: Okay, I guess for me, my original thought, as I kind of mentioned earlier, was Eldari, because that's pretty much still my one, number one favorite faction and did a lot of planning and all that. Um, and then Votan hit, and I'm like, I want to do Votan, And um, it looks like... The only Voton I could do would be what's in the starter box. or well, not starter, but the box that's out now. And th- for me to be able to do that, I would have to, I think, paint about 70 to 80 models in a month. And also, as, as Kevin noted, that would be a very limited army that would not do terribly well. And I don't know how much fun it would be just to have pioneers, troops, and the two HQ choices they could probably do some stuff but they really need the rest of the line to kind of be a full army in my mind um mm-hmm. so then that's where rob suggested hey oh i think i pointed out that they could be agents of the imperium in crusade and rob said well you could just do sisters and then have them come in as your agents of the imperium and i thought that's a great idea i like sisters haven't played them I already know I don't have to worry about their crusade rules too much, because I have my one character... Because I like Sephrim, Zephrim. I like the fly, or the fast attacks that have the wings. I wish there was an HQ that was like that, but there's not. So I'm taking the only HQ that is, which is Celestine. I mean, she's she's a wonderful model, but she is not one that I can actually send down that saint path because she's, she's kind already of there already yeah. yes <laughs> yes so. <laughs> so i do have a character i have a dogmata because i love throwing, running a dogmata with my large squad of 20 sisters because hey we will hold this so that's the one that's going to try to get upgraded i already know you can't go through all the paths in five games so that's why i'm not really that worried about that, I might not even follow it, because I don't think I'll even get down one path. Uh, but we'll see. But So that's that's the core now. And then I've got a Voton, which I'm going to bring in as Agents of the Imperium. And to do that, I have to have an Inquisitor. Well, thankfully, I can just toss the Inquisitor onto the Sister's Detachment and not even take up a slot. So that's easy enough, uh, even though I do have HQ slots available. But here's the catch with Voton. They can only be 25% of your army. So it's like, oh, okay. Or no, not your army. They, you can only put um, Votan on your order of battle if they are up to 25% of your supply limit. So at the time, <clears throat> I built out my Votan list. I'm like, well, it's 26 points or 26 PL. Well, to get that to work, I will have to spend one requisition point to add five points to my <laughs> supply order or order of battle. So that way I can actually include 26 power level of Voton. Um, in the end, I'm not doing that because, well, the other models do not get released and the points increased means I'm only, go- I have 21 PL of Voton now. So I don't have to worry about that, but that's still not 50 PL. Even throwing the 4PL Inquisitor on, well, there's 25. Uh, what can I do that's 25 also Agents of the Imperium? My Eldar Knight! So I'm also bringing my Eldar Knight to go <laughs> with it. So hey, it's kind of like uh, another run for my Inquisitor and her sister in the Eldar Knight um, that I ran at Midwest Conquest. They're showing back up here as two pieces of this Crusade army, which... I'm liking because I don't think I'll really run this combo in any other format outside. And so it'll it'll be neat to get those two models to have another go. Because truthfully, the Eldar Knight was my whole inspiration to get into Imperial Knights. So being able to take it as a Freeblade, Agents of the Imperium, having the Inquisitor there, who's already an Agents of the Imperium, that then I can spend a requisition point to make the Votan, Agents of Imperium, And then suddenly I have a sister's army that I still get the bonuses for because everything else is agents of the Imperium. (laughs) 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 Oh my. So yeah, that's what I'm doing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and as I, that's, I mean, it's fun. Like it's, that's what also one of the things about like, you don't necessarily have to worry like, is this a really competitive army? Is this a, like, is this a, a a well-balanced, you know, army? It's like, I want to tell a story with this army. I want to – and, you know, it's the kind of stuff that we encourage in, like, friendly events. And I think crusade is a different way to approach that.
2: Yeah. I I will say, Rob, this is also my way of getting around crusade rules. (laughs) Because I've got knights, but I'm not going to do the crusade knights rules because my army isn't 100% knights. I've got Votan. I don't do the Votan crusade rules because my army isn't 100% Votan. Right. <laughs> so the only crusade rules I actually do have to pay attention, and the Inquisitor doesn't have any, so the only thing I have to pay attention to are the sisters ones. So that's going to be nice.
1: Yeah. And uh, and like you said, the sisters ones you don't even have to pay that close attention to because you're not going to complete any of them. Yeah. So,
2: so I'm just playing games.
4: <laughs>
2: yeah. And, <my laughs> and maybe, maybe getting honor- battle honors.
1: Yeah, my tower kind of the same way because I would imagine in five games I'm probably not going to complete the conquest of a of a sector of space. Like I might get a couple of planets out of like cuz you end up doing like D6 plus 2 or or maybe D3 plus 2 planets or something. It's like I'm not going to finish a sector. I'll you know, I'll do the bookkeeping, I'll keep track of it because I could then take this army and play it into a into another uh crusade event later on not one of these but i could take what i've accumulated and and move on with it but i'm not gonna finish it and that like i'm not gonna make any meaningful progress in that in that path and that's fine they're still gonna i'll still have like all the uh like i'll have all the you know requisitions and things like that to play around with the one downside is with a lot of su- like uh, faction specific agendas they lean hard into whatever your faction's system is so i so so i probably won't be taking those as much
2: (laughs) me i mean i looked at them the votons i can't take because they all need you to have grudge tokens on things or judgment tokens on things i can't do the knights ones because they're not relevant at all so and the sisters ones are yeah so I'll probably just be taking the book ones for the most part. Hmm.
1: And like the games we're going to be playing, we'll only be taking two or three stratagems. So just figure out which one, or two or three agendas. Uh, so you know, just take whichever ones apply. But I'd uh, love to yeah, take the Botan ones. Yeah, I know it'd be fun. You know, it's, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So and for me, I'm mostly taking like. You know, the Tau is partially there because Kevin seeded the idea, and also just it's an opportunity to play the to because I have actually not played my Tao in this edition because I didn't play them before their codex because they were terrible. I, I Well, I take that back. I played them like once or twice in this codex, and they were bad. And I haven't played them since the new Codex came out because I was working, like, I was playing Death Guard and doing other stuff, and I'm like, oh, the Tau are really, really good, apparently, but I kind of feel bad about playing them. And I also wasn't playing much in the way of competitive games at the time. So this is a chance to play the Tau in a non-competitive environment. I'm taking stuff that's good, but I'm also not going in like i'm also taking a town which is not bad but it's a lot of eggs in one basket and i really hope it doesn't die in too many games because if it ends up like i probably it probably won't gain any experience i mean it'll kill stuff (laughs) but i i have i just have this feeling i'm gonna roll bad into battle tests on them and uh yeah i just don't i don't don't see it going and
2: give it the three experience as being great
1: you know, a townar with a battle scar would actually be kind of interesting.
0: <laughs> um, weapon you know, damage. You know what I just realized? What um, did you just realize? Well, I'm going through and looking at this. So there are no custom chaos battle traits for world eaters in the codex because they're not in the codex, oh. and there is no and there is no crusade <laughs> information or updates in the white dwarf article. Of course not.
1: So, you won't have any, I didn't even sub faction specific stuff. You'll just have like chaos space marine generic generic stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which was like, oh, I didn't realize that. So, so you're making it simple for yourself. (laughs) That I am, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And then that gets to the
2: other part of the, the bookkeeping thing of what I would hope they would clarify is they say you can roll or you can choose which battle scar would be best for your unit. Right. And I'm like, because, I mean, if you you choose, well, you're always going to pick the one that's least hampering to the unit. So it's, ah, I don't know.
1: Well, I would say, you'd say you would always choose it, but you might choose to pick the one, you know, like, if, if you're playing really to the narrative, you would oh, true. Like, think about how you died and then maybe played, you know. That is fair. Go off of that. So, but yeah, in a competitive sense, yeah, everyone's going to take the least punishing one. And then, of course, you can always just spend a requisition point to remove the Battle Scar, but I just hope I don't accumulate too many. (laughs) But, yeah, I think that's pretty much our our rundown of uh, Crusade, what it is, how to do it, and kind of how we're going about it and some of the things we like about it. Um, If you have had experience playing in a Crusade event or Crusade League or if you have a Crusade army that you've been developing – Um, we'd love to hear from you and, and find out how, what kind of experiences other players have been having with this format. Um, have you been enjoying it? Is there anything you would want to change about it? Um, do you like how the mechanics of it really work? Do you like your sub faction or your particular faction's mechanics of it? Or do you not? Or do you even interact with them? We would love to hear from you. So again, uh, we told you earlier in the episode how to send letters. So if you want to get mailed to us, we would love to hear from you about your crusade experiences
2: because US Open for two of us is going to be our first experiences.
1: Yeah, and I'm going in, well, this will not be my first crusade experience. It will be my first one with Tao. So, I'll be going in with a brand new army that I'll have to uh kind of relearn how its crusade rules work and what agendas and stuff I want to pick for it. So, yeah, it's going to be a new experience in some way or other for all of us. So, it'll be it'll be fun. And then sp- that's going to switch us over to hobby progress and my hobby progress 40K wise has been working on the tau units I need to finish up for my 50 PL. I have like all the base coding done. I'm starting to get into like details on a on a few units. So I've got a broadside, uh Enforcer Suit Commander, three Crisis suits, and uh a unit of breachers to finish up. And, and an Ethereal on the hover drone. And once I have all those, and they're like, I've only got I've had a couple of weeks, I've got, what, three weeks at this point to get it done. Um, but, mm-hmm. like, I'm at the point where I'm, like, I'm going to start, I'm going to be working on details soon. It won't take long to knock them out. So, uh, that is what I will have been doing 40k-wise, and that's what I will be doing over the next three weeks.
0: Um, I've basically just been still unpacking and stuff like that for moving, but <laughs> kind of getting all the... the- models together for my list and going over lists and trying to like figure out how, how I can, how I can build a list to take to this and not also have to like transport a bunch of models on a plane and things like that. So, um, I've been kind of building and rebuilding and I think I've got the list I'm settled on for now. Um, I shouldn't have to paint anything, but I do think that I'm probably going to go through and just like maybe touch up some details like bases and stuff like that. Um over the next few weeks. So hopefully I can get all of that done.
2: I guess for me, I've just been working on a little thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, so many leagues of Oton models. Um, the first box, I have all of those models put together and primed. I'm working on painting the first squad of Hearthkin warriors. Cause they will be in my list for the U S open. Um, then after that, I'll work on painting the, um, Two squads of pioneers from the first and second box. Um, and then one call and that's my Voton detachment. Um, and then, so as you heard, I got the second box and I have almost everything put together. I've got the pioneers and the HQs put together. And then I decided to try something new because of kind of one, because of the nerfs and two, because I wanted to try something. And so I, my third squad of Hearthken warriors, um, I have fully magnetized their, their weapon tree. So I can choose between the guns, which is nice because then I can be ion or bolt and then pick any of the two heavy weapons for it. Um, so I still need to put together the fourth squad of that and also magnetize them. And then based on how good or bad that turns out, like if I get sick of it, because I'm still not sure I'm 100% sold on magnetizing because I like it that I can swap out the options, but the downside is um, the voton are small. So sometimes I can't get everything to line up exactly properly. So you can see a little seam or the hand looks like it, it juts out a little extra because part of the hand is too thin to actually like drill to put the magnet in or maybe i just need even smaller magnets but i already have teeny tiny magnets two millimeter wide by one millimeter tall i think i need like a half millimeter tall which i don't even know if that's a thing but even then it's like oh my gosh will this be strong enough to hold or will i drop it on the floor and lose it because well they're small um (laughs) but no i've got that magnetized and so the only when i work on the third box um I'll decide if I want to magnetize that and that's going to be in my big squad of 20 and then also three more pioneers and two more HQs. So I'll have all of those units mostly set up. I still want more pioneers. So just, just lots and lots of working on Voton.
3: For me works really busy right now. So I haven't had much time. Um, I did manage to get put together a, just a few Beast Naga Boys, I found another set of sprues for a Beast Naga Boys kit, so I'm working on putting those together right now. Um, and then I, I decided I was gonna try uh, a couple of nights ago, um, trying to do a model by using the slap chop method, which I found very interesting for, for anybody who, who doesn't know. It's where you prime a model black and then you go through and, and just super heavy, like, dry brush of white or light gray over it. And then you use, like, contrast paints or inks to add over color over, like, the value of of the kind of black and white model that you've made from the black and dry brush. It's supposed to be a very quick, you know, process to get a nice finished looking model. And... Uh, for for my painting style, it like it doesn't really fit for me very well because I have a tendency to work. I, I like my paints generally opaque because I work kind of messy to start with, and then go back in and, and refine and add details. As I do like shading and highlights. And that doesn't particularly work very well for our Slap Chop. You kind of need to start off accurate with the contrast paints because you don't have to go back and add in any of the, you know, highlights or shades or details because those are already there from the first step. Right. You also have to kind of like, I feel like you have to kind of plan out more what Stuff is exactly what colors ahead of time, where if I'm painting, if I'm painting a a new unit that I haven't painted before, sometimes it's a, like, the first model that I'll paint of that unit, it will have different little bits on it that aren't the same as even another model from that same faction. And so I kind of have to figure out, you know, what little gubbin bits are going to be what colors, and, like, I feel like with Slap Chop, you kind of need to already know that. So, like, not necessarily a good one to just, like, go in blind with and just start e- putting down color. <laughs> right, exactly. So, like, I can I can definitely see the value in doing, like, a lot of more, like, simple, organic kind of stuff. Like, I would totally use this on, you know... Poxwalkers walkers or nurglings or, you know, stuff like that. So while I didn't like the results that I got on the specific model that I did, you know, I think it was a successful experiment because, well, I learned stuff. And mm-hmm. it is a technique that I think I can use for certain things, but I'm not going to use it for everything. Right.
1: Now that makes sense. It's like there are some, you know, some things are just going to work. Like using contrast for like Space Marines, for example, is not a great technique, no matter how much dry brushing you do to try to smooth things out. And so, yeah, doing more organic things. Like I imagine like NIDS would probably paint up really fast with something like this. or Yeah.
3: Like so like, like if I if I was going to do – like I, I kind of want to do like a bunch of jeans dealer like – like gene stealer gene stealers for tyrannids, not gene stealer cults, but like, yeah, doing gene stealers this way would like make them paint up like super fast. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then one other thing I picked up a hobby tool that is like completely extravagant that I didn't need to get, but it's kind of cool. It is a wow stick pen drill and this is like just a a little electric rechargeable with usb drill that that is powered and it's and it's like kind of it's low torque it doesn't like go super fast so it's easy to can kind of control what it does and there's various bit sizes that that I can do and it's kind of a neat little thing for like if I decide that I need to pin something or, you know, just drilling out, you know, gun barrels. Yeah, some of those I'm looking at the
1: uh like the Amazon page for it. Some of those bits are tiny. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well there's they're cool. There's what you need for uh for those uh voton magnetizing
2: I I mean, Richard said that. I was like, Oh yeah, I didn't mention that, that I actually finally bought a a hand drill. Mine is not electric, but it was like, but it has a bunch of bits and I found the right size for the magnets I had, which that was an experience because I first tried to go with the magnets I owned without measuring. I'm like, Oh, these magnets are too big. (laughs) And so then I found the right size and remember measure once magnetized. I don't know. Bad thing, but (laughs) measure first is the important part
1: right <laughs> that's cool and and i mean the some of those hobby tools are like the fun silly ones that you don't really need but are cool to play like those are some, some sometimes some of the coolest ones just to have fun with and try things out
3: yeah i i would also um i haven't gotten a chance to really use it yet because i haven't primed anything in a while but like I've been kind of frustrated with how like blue tack doesn't super work for very well for some of the larger size models so I've gotten a uh crystal clear museum wax and it's just it's like a little like thick almost like a balm it like it's it's wax and it's designed to be kind of sticky but then like it will hold stuff in place but temporarily so i'm curious to see how that works this is uh let's see the brand on the one that i got is called quake hold i think is the brand
1: oh yeah i see it the quake hold crystalline clear museum wax yep
3: yeah on amazon Mm -hmm. yep i'll I'll be interested to try that out that is very cool
1: Alright, it is time to uh, switch over to the last part of the show, the morale phase and uh, this week we are going to talk about something that is about to end because I think the season finale comes out later this week and that has been She-Hulk, Attorney at Law which has been a series dropping on Disney Plus as all the Marvel and Star Wars stuff does She-Hulk has been a lot of fun Yeah, A lot of fun yeah, um, I've really been digging it. It's one of the first times in the MCU, like we've had Deadpool playing, you know, Marvel superheroes for comedy. But this is the first one in the MCU where they've really been leaning into the comedy aspect of it, complete with fourth wall breaks and uh, her directly commenting to the audience, even referring to like some of the uh, cameos that they have as Twitter armor. <laughs> <laughs> so, like they're the writers and creators of the show are absolutely aware of not only what kind of show they're making but how people online are likely to respond
3: to it yeah i i i'd find it interesting and i'll be curious to see how they handle it going forward but like from from what i know of she hulk for the most part in the comics, uh, as far as to my knowledge, she generally only breaks the fourth wall in her own books. So, like when she's on like the Avengers, or like when she's in those other books as you know a member, like or in like the Fantastic Four, or any of the other A Force, mm-hmm. or any of those other books that she's in, like she doesn't generally break the fourth wall in those books. So, I'm I'm curious to see if. Once they you if they start using She Hulk in the other shows, if they will you know confine confine the fourth wall breaks to just her show,
1: I would think so because it's it is more the the atmosphere of this particular show than around the character in general. Because like you could you could do this right. character in, complete with like having Tatiana Maslany play her. And not do the fourth wall breaks, and it would still be mm-hmm. fine. Right, but I yeah. do think it fits the character of this particular way they're framing the show to do it. But I, th- right. I, I yeah, I, I don't think they would. I don't think they would like drop her into like a crossover series and then have her break the fourth wall unless
3: yeah. they dropped her into a Deadpool episode. <laughs> yeah, like, had Deadpool like, do a or, cameo, or, or had or like that. yeah, had had her interacting with Deadpool in some way, then it would be appropriate. I think. But like, yeah, that's because Deadpool's one of those ones where like it would be appropriate for him to break the fourth wall like any time,
0: right? Well, I think I think that you're right with the sh- the tone of the show because yeah. I fully don't expect like Miss Marvel will have her, uh, you know, her kind of like dream sequence ideas that she has, where like they they do the neon on screen. I don't expect that to be in the Marvels. You know, I definitely didn't expect, and we didn't get like the Wanda Vision aspects. You know, some of some of the things that were unique to that show in Multiverse of Madness. So i I would suspect that they're not going to use the fourth wall breaks when she joins up, teams up in other ones because yeah. that's not the the tone. And we've kind of seen how that tone can shift because we've had Abomination and we've had Wong as like the two main cameos that have appeared in other things and. You know, uh, some people have complained about this, but I don't really care. But people are like, Oh my god, Wong is a completely different character in this show. And it's like, no, he's in a different show. So he's gonna fit the tone of the show. When he goes back to the next Avengers team up, he's gonna fit the tone of that.
3: So Right. <clears throat> I don't think it's gonna be that big of a deal. And and did they not see and did they not see the the end, you know, sequence for Shang-Chi? I mean, Cause that's, cause that, cause that's this, that's (laughs) that Wong, right?
0: No, Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I, okay. So my opinion on She-Hulk, I'll say this. It's kind of the same thing that I had with Thor and Love, Love and Thunder. This is a more comedic take. It's a more comedic show. I get if you don't like the type of comedy that they're doing, that's fine. That is a valid criticism. Hey, I don't think the show works. I don't think the comedy works because comedy is very subjective. I do think that, and we've seen this with some other Marvel shows and movies, that there's additional unfair criticism because it is a female based show. And almost all of that is complete garbage and not valid yeah. criticism. Yeah. Like, it just isn't. Like, people, I've heard people complain, like, well, but how come. Bruce Banner had to spend 10 years and five movies learning how to control her powers and took her 30 minutes. They're trying to emasculate Bruce. I'm like, no, she's a different person. Like maybe throughout the course of the show, they're going to explain where she's going to have her struggles. And Oh, lo and behold, that's the struggle of the show is her trying to figure out how to balance her abilities with her personal life. Like maybe they're trying to tell a different story. I don't know. It's there are, there are valid criticisms and there's, complete BS criticisms. And it's really uh, difficult to at times separate them out because people get very, especially online, people get very, very about talking about a show like this.
1: <laughs> yeah. And also, I think they addressed that pretty well in the first episode that Bruce never took the time to figure out how to manage his anger other than just choking it down she actually had to ma- manage it because that's just part of navigating life as a woman because people will kill you if you don't.
0: Right, and and I, I thought it was so crazy because people were like, oh my gosh, they're emasculating Bruce and they're doing this. And I'm like, no, this is actually that first episode of She-Hulk is the single most character development we've had for for the Hulk since the Hulk, like since the Incredible Hulk movie. Like, he got more character development in that 30 minutes than he did in any of the other movies. So... I'm actually excited to see what they do with him going forward. Because, yeah, maybe, maybe it turns out that the problem with Bruce Banner was Bruce Banner. <laughs> like, <laughs> we <So>, have <laughs> Oh, so the other thing I love, too, about the show, in my opinion, and I, I love the interconnected continuity of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as much as anybody else. I also like that this show, aside from the cameos, is like, we don't care about that. We're going to tell a fun story about what we're doing and sure we'll have the cameos come in here and there, but we're not, we're not going to explain, we're not, I mean, obviously they're setting up a villain, they're setting up something, a major conflict, but like this isn't a show that's going to set up the next Hulk movie. This isn't a show that's focused on setting up where She-Hulk fits into the, you know, Avengers Kang dynasty. It's like, no, we're interested in telling a She-Hulk series, so we're going to do that. And I, I think that's refreshing. But it does also kind of set
1: up the next Hulk thing with what happens to him,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> and but
1: it's all like in the not around It's not a
0: focus. It's right, not a focus, yeah. It's not a focus,
1: but it's just kind of there. Also, I gotta give them credit. You know, you mentioned that abominations in the show. They acknowledge the weirdness of the Hulk movie not starring Mark Ruffalo.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm a different person now, literally. <laughs> Yeah, yes you are. Yes you yeah. literally are. <laughs> uh,
1: also, you know, we get we get um the MCU version of Daredevil reintroduced with yes. Charlie Cox. I mean, technically we got him in No Way Home, although that is a Sony Marvel joint, so uh, we got uh, we got yeah. Matt Murdock in this. We on that we one. got, we Matt got
0: Daredevil in this. <laughs>
1: complete with a yeah. hallway fight. There had to be yeah. a dark hallway fight and we got one. <laughs> yeah but more importantly and, spoiler we get <laughs> daredevil doing the walk of
0: shame after at the, end of the episode <laughs> which that may was be great. the same funniest thing i've ever seen in a mcu project <laughs> that was great yeah. carrying the shoes even like carrying his boots so
1: like that that's <laughs> and, and you know there will be people who like freak out about him like it's a show about superpowered lawyers why wouldn't you have matt murdoch Right. And who's going to be the one person who can kind of relate to what She-Hulk is going through
0: managing her legal career and her superheroism? It's going to be Matt Murdock. So it's like, it works. And and they've done nothing to directly contradict any of the Netflix stuff. Like, so uh, people that are obsessed, like, does this confirm that he's in the MCU? The the Netflix just does does it matter? Like, no, it doesn't matter. Like for this, for this story, it matters that he is a superhero lawyer. That's it. Doesn't matter. Like it doesn't. The there are people that obsess over the continuity of these shows, and like this is this is the whole secret sauce for the MCU. The continuity does not matter at all. They just make you think it does, right? just like change actual they comic need to change books to tell the story. Yes. Just like actual the comic books. Yeah. The <laughs> Don't tell the comic book guys that though. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh. But like. It, the reason why the MCU is good and remains good, despite what people say, is they focus on making good movies and good shows. And, like, that's the number one priority is, no, we're going to make the Ms. Marvel series or the Loki series or Falcon and Winter Soldier, even though they exist to set up other things, we're going to make the best version of that show that we can. And then that's it. That's the focus. And then the other parts fall in. So... Yeah, the continuity stuff never matters as much as anybody actually says it does. They're more interested in just telling the stories. But in some of these stories, as you mentioned with Daredevil, yeah, Matt Murdock is a person that would relate with Jen Walters. So, sure, why doesn't he show up in this show? Captain America, uh, post-Avengers, is leading the Avengers. So when you do a third Captain America movie, the Avengers are going to show up. Because that's what he does now. Like, I don't know. I, as long as they keep the focus on the stories and everything derives from the stories, including the setups, that's what I think is you know, the strong point of the MCU. And when they where they fail and where they fall down is when they try to focus on the continuity too much. And that's when you wind up getting movies like Iron Man 2 or Thor The Dark World or Age of Ultron, even, where the focus wasn't as much on the story as it was the larger meta-narrative. And... Every time they do that, it they tend to fall down.
1: Yeah, and also, uh, huge props to Marvel for giving this show to a female director, female writers, female producer, female mm. stars, because, and I hate using female because it sounds it makes me sound like a Ferengi, female. It really does. But, you know. Yeah, I know it's terrible, <laughs> ter- but, uh, but you know, having this show being by women about women yeah. from a, f- from a woman's viewpoint. Cause, you know, talking with my, my partner, uh, while watching this, it's like, you can really appreciate, like, this is being told from the viewpoint of somebody that doesn't, that doesn't get examined a lot in, you know, Marvel properties, you know, in in superheroism in general, it's almost always from, like, guys wanting to watch action. And there's action in this. There absolutely is. But it's also, like, the things that are happening around her and to her are things that are relatable. And just, like, for, like, you know, Muslim kids growing up in the U.S., Ms. Marvel, you know, Ms. Marvel, very, very relatable for those audiences. Having... Um, Moon Knight, like directed by people from the Muslim world from like around Egypt and such, was big, like cause they got the representation and how the area is presented right. You know, that it doesn't feel like a weird like it it doesn't feel like white-splaining or mansplaining or anything like that. It yeah. feels like somebody telling a story that's authentic and that helps make it work even better. And so Like, there's things that, you know, Jennifer Walters has to deal with that, yeah, the guys in the MCU don't have to deal with, but that's because they're guys and they don't have to deal with the same kind of treatment. And it's nice to see this coming from a different perspective. And even if you aren't a woman, it's good to see this because it's good to hear how things come, you know, how things appear to people who aren't you it's good yeah. to hear those perspectives it helps make us a better society to hear from people who aren't us and who don't experience the world the same way we do and it and it's helping make our entertainment even more well rounded and I think better for it so um, I it's been a fantastic show I've had a lot of fun I had a lot of fun with this I've had a lot of fun with Ms. Marvel I'm looking forward to seeing what like kind of what comes next for all for all of these characters too, so yeah, um, so yeah, uh, She Hulk highly recommended. Um, at, by the time you hear this, the next, the last episode of the season will probably be out, and it is definitely coming up to like a big conclusion with like of like villains and everything,
0: and so. Yeah. Uh, well, so, so it, one last comment that I had just real quick. Um, I love the fact that they're doing different things; they're taking more chances within shows they're they're doing different styles, they're doing different things with it. This is kind of more of a just a network sitcom type show. Other shows have been different styles, including the one they just dropped like yesterday, Werewolf by Night, which is just a Marvel, you know, special presentation. It's really good. It's really different than a lot of other things they've done. That's what I love about this is that they keep trying to take challenge uh, take chances and put different stories out there that fit the characters. And I think that makes it really interesting because it keeps it fresh. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Cause I mean, you, you know,
1: it's one of the things that helps fight, uh, you know, MCU overload by having the stories just being the same superhero stuff over and over again, having, having different kinds of stories, just like one of the reasons why, like, Andor is really good for Star Wars is because it's yep. a different kind of story than Obi-Wan was, which is different than The Mandalorian was, which is different than Season 2.5, a.k.a. The Book of Boba Fett, was. You know, it's... it's they're all different genres and different storytelling. Just, like, Rogue One is a different movie than, like, Revenge of the Sith, you know? It's, like, they're mm-hmm. different t- styles of film, different stories. And it shows... It, it's better to show the... The breadth of what kinds of stories you can tell rather than just telling the same story over and over again with just slightly different characters, so yeah yeah no, that that is really good well, I think that will go ahead and wrap it up for episode two hundred and sixty seven um, Our next episode will probably be getting closer we 'll be getting closer and closer to the uh, warhammer us open and then the next episode of that after that will be our coverage of the us open and so we'll in a couple in a couple of episodes we'll get to tell you about what our crusade experience was like at the us open uh but until then from all of us here at preferred enemies i'm your host rob
2: kevin dennis
1: and richard uh good night good gaming and uh go play some crusade it's narrative fun